Yeah, it's, it's a viable theory, I think. It sounds crazy on the face of it, but given that it's Kubrick, there are some reasons to believe that he may have been involved in this. Uh, yeah, I think Kubrick probably faked the moonshots for the government. Wow. Ladies and gentlemen, we They want to be seen, and they want to make you uncomfortable. They were definitely seen. They did not make me uncomfortable. Uh, in fact, I made them uncomfortable by not being made uncomfortable by them. Now, uh, backtrack here. i got to hear this story. How, what? Tell me about this MIB encounter or encounters. Oh, it was encounters. If I can come up with a practical way for us to get to the moon with the shuttle program, and if I've seen that confirmed by an actual NASA astronaut, then yes, plainly this is a viable plan. And if it is a viable plan, our government is not stupid. If there is a reason for us to be going to the moon, then yeah, we could have been going to and from the moon secretly using the shuttle program since the Apollo program went down. This is what I do when I'm out having coffee, and this is what these are the conversations I have with my friends. Exactly, yeah. Pretty much people are just listening in on a phone call between us. Given the choice, which is your preference? Smoking jacket or uh, ascot? It's a turkey shoot. Let's have fun. <laughs> exactly. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Benal of BenalofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 7 and the 2012 edition of our Thanksgiving special known simply as Rucks Giving. Before we dive into the big show, of course, please allow me to extend a hearty Happy Thanksgiving to all of our fantastic American listeners throughout the country, and for all of our expat U.S. listeners living around the world. I hope you all have a tremendous Thanksgiving holiday, and it is truly humbling to know that somewhere along the way, you're going to be tuning in here for our Thanksgiving special as I'm sure you have deciphered by now, our guest is the wildly popular Bruce Rucks, who appeared on last year's pre-Thanksgiving episode to the great delight of many BOA audio listeners. And since the episode got over so well, and I've always been searching for a great Thanksgiving guest slash episode, it all came together with Rucks Giving. So we're doing it all again here this year on the program. And since Bruce is very elusive, I decided that we'd turn this year's festivities over to the BOA audio listeners and allow them to submit questions for the amazing Bruce Rucks. And we received nearly 20 questions in total, so the bulk of the program is devoted to tackling those listener-submitted questions. As such, over the course of this conversation, we are covering a wide array of topics, including the recent Denver UFO sighting, why Bruce is not on Facebook, Stanley Kubrick and the moon hoax theory, Zechariah Sitchin, government influence on UFO films, 
Bruce's encounters with Men in Black and his thoughts on My Labs, his take on reality TV paranormal shows, 9-11, and the challenges of writing a new book. Along the way, we'll talk about a plethora of films and TV shows, including Prometheus, V, The Event, Apollo 18, The Thing, American Horror Story, and even Scooby-Doo. Altogether, it is a fun, enlightening, and organic edition of the program that is tailor-made for the long ride to Grandma's house en route to Thanksgiving dinner or as an after-meal companion while you wait in line for Doorbuster Black Friday sales. BOA Audio gives thanks to our awesome listeners with our old friend Bruce Rux in our annual Rux Giving Feast. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Bruce Rux, please allow me to provide you with a little background on him. Bruce Rux was an actor for 20 years and is still current on his actor's equity card, though he hasn't performed on stage since the early 1990s. He appeared in perhaps 80 shows, winning numerous acting awards in several states. Bruce received his B.A. in theater from Loretto Heights College in Denver in 1979 and an M.A. in mass communications emphasis on playwriting from Kansas State University in 1988. In 1980-81, he performed for a year with Wayne State University's prestigious Hillbury Classical Repertory Theater in Detroit toward an MFA that was never completed. He won the first annual Jerome D. Johanning Playwriting Award in 1987 at K-State for his four-act historical drama, The Grave Affair which he directed as an American College Theater Festival entry the same year. He has written several plays since. For the past ten years, he has been an upscale security officer for Wackenhut. Bruce has studied UFOs his entire life. After the Mars Observer probe failure in August of 1993, he wrote to share his findings with several researchers in the field and with a few elected representatives. As a result, he found himself invited on ancient astronaut author Zechariah Sitchin's first tour of Egypt in the spring of 1994. During that trip, Bruce decided to write a book containing the results of his own UFO research and conclusions, which resulted in Architects of the Underworld, Unriddling Atlantis, Anomalies of Mars, and The Mystery of the Sphinx, published in 1996. The following year, he wrote a companion volume that turned out to be even more massive, Hollywood vs. the Aliens, the motion picture industry's participation in UFO disinformation. Both were published by Frog Books in Berkeley, now part of Random House. If you'd like to hear more from Bruce Rux, dig on into the BOA Audio Archive for the landmark Bruce Rux Trilogy in BOA Audio Season 4, as well as last year's Rux Giving Special. With all that said, my friends, let's get down to business and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on November 13th, 2012. Bruce Rux joins us for the 2012 installment of Rux Giving. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 7. This is kind of an odd introduction to do because there really is no suspense as far as the guest goes. Of course, this is our Thanksgiving episode, but around these parts we like to call it Rux Giving after our episode last year, which featured, of course, the amazing Bruce Rux, making his long way to return to the program since 
the uh, landmark trilogy back in season four that people are still talking about. So it was high time we brought him back then, and people went crazy for it and loved it so much. And I've always wanted to do a Thanksgiving traditional episode like we do with Stan Friedman and the holiday episode. So Ruck's giving just kind of all came together, and it was like, now we've got a, a Thanksgiving special. So this is it. This is the Thanksgiving special. I've, I've talked about him here, Bruce Rucks. People just love him, and I really appreciate uh, – not just our friendship, but how he's kind of become like this exclusive uh, guru to the program that we have. And you don't see him on all these other shows. He's sort of a, a longtime friend of BOA, and I really appreciate that. He's the author of Architects of the Underworld, as well as Hollywood versus the Aliens. For folks who want to know more about those, check out the trilogy. We talked about Hollywood versus the Aliens in that, and check out last year's Ruxgiving for Architects of the Underworld. And, of course, it bears mentioning that uh, he was on during the summer because he was on the scene at the now infamous Aurora shooting in uh, Aurora, Colorado. So he's, uh, like I said, a longtime friend of the program and someone who is on really some major and historic episodes and now part of uh, the tradition, if you will. So welcome back to the show, Bruce. Uh, I expect, as always, a fun and enlightening conversation. Always a pleasure. Well, I, I promised when we had you on in July that we'd be back here for Rucksgiving and uh, some lighter fare. So how have you been since July, and you know, what have you been up to personally and uh, diving into the esoteric world at all? Anything that's kind of uh, come across your way that you find interesting? The esoteric world is really dull as hell. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there were actually recently some uh, UFO sightings in, over Denver or in Colorado anyway. I can't remember. Oh, yeah, your neck of the woods. Yeah. Uh, a friend of mine brought them to my attention. I don't even really watch the news very often. And um, I, my friend Matt came out and chatted with me just last week, and he was telling me that there was this flap about uh, a recent UFO spate taking place in Colorado. And he, he explained it to me. It sounded like every other UFO spate I've ever come across, so I, I wasn't terribly impressed. Uh, the only difference here was uh, someone had contacted Nine News. Uh, they had their own cameras and picked up these flashes zigzagging around in the sky, um, which they hadn't even noticed until they slowed the footage down, and then they could see them. So whoever this was sent it to Nine News, I think it was Nine News, and uh, Nine News didn't want anything to do with it. They just thought, yeah, uh-huh, whatever. And he said, look, you really got to check this out, I'm telling you. And he pestered them enough that they actually set their own cameras up. It always happened at a particular time of day. So they set their own cameras up and shot some footage, and sure enough, they got the exact same thing. So that's why it became news. Right. And they were showing the zigzags and the flashes of light. I haven't seen these myself. Okay. Uh, just from what was described, I'm not remotely surprised. It's like practically every other UFO sighting I've ever come across, and I've come across a great many. Um, the only question then is, I don't remember what the region was. My first question was, what's located in that area? And the answer was, not much. They said something like... Um, I think it was cyanamid, cyanamid warehouses or something like that, mm. which are supposed to be vacant. And um, I, I once did security for cyanamid a long, 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 long time ago. It was way out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, it's one of those places where just to find it, they give you these com really complex directions. You know, take a left here at this uh, particular gated fence and then go two miles. If you go past this, you've gone too far. Oh, God. Then you hang a right. And you end up on these little dirt paths in the middle of a field in the middle of nowhere. And some guy has to see you flash your lights and come out and let you in, you know. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's that far removed. It was just kind of out in the foothills. Uh, what is in these things? Is, it, are they, is, it, is the stuff in the, <laughs> that you're guarding, like, important, or, or is it just, like, 
Well, that's the joke. Yeah. What's, uh, why so elaborate? Time, this, we're going back 20 years now, or maybe further back than that. This was a long time ago. I've done security for many, many years. It, it was kind of in the foothills in the middle of nowhere, and there's really nothing in any of these sheds. The patrols were super easy. You just walk around, you know, once every hour. There's really nothing to check. You just kind of check and see that the sheds are still there and that there's still nothing in them. Now, obviously, something is there. In in theory, we were there for just for insurance purposes, and frequently security jobs are like that. They have you there just to make sure that there aren't vandals breaking in or people camping on the property or what have you. Right. Um, and presumably, that was what we were there for. At least that's what I was told. However, back in the Mothman sightings in 66, 67 in uh, Ohio and West Virginia, it was exactly the same kind of facilities that the Mothman was hanging around. Those were supposed to be empty, too, uh, but they weren't. That's where they were storing nuclear triggers. And that, of course, didn't come out until many years later, but it also makes sense of why the Mothman was there in the first place. Uh, we'd had some sightings, I don't know, five, six years ago uh, out in this region over a particular company. I won't say its name because they probably wouldn't want it mentioned. Yeah. Uh, but in theory, there wasn't anything going on in that company either. But I'm sure that they had something going on there because UFOs were seen there and it did hit the news and then it got taken off very quickly. Huh. Uh, but I'm sure there was some kind of activity taking place. Anytime there is industrial activity, uh, especially if it has anything to do with uh, radiation or space, uh, there, you're going to find UFO activity going on around it. Interesting. So you think if this was a UFO they saw recently, then there's something shady going on in these little uh, shanties? There's something secret going on in that area, yeah. Interesting. But that's why I'm not mentioning it, just in case, because I don't know. All right. I wouldn't want to mess anything up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're going to get busted for like giving away secrets somehow. Uh, <laughs> right. All right. Well, there's there's the esoteric uh the esoteric appetizer for folks. How, how have you been otherwise, you know, everything else uh, since since we last talked to you? Well, I'm still unemployed. I'm going through that lovely process right now. I haven't even filed for unemployment yet, and I've been unemployed, unemployed and underemployed uh, since the end of last year. Um, I kept thinking I'd probably be able to bail out of it before now, but that's not quite working. So I'm, I'm actually looking at filing for unemployment and seeing how that goes. But it's been 20 years at least since I was on unemployment, and it's it's a whole new process for me now. Yeah. I had to actually go to friends that have been on it and say, what exactly do I do here, and <laughs> how, how do I handle this? Because you know, back then it was completely different. Now you do it all online, and uh, I think you do submit most of your applications online and stuff like that too. But I just needed to get an idea of how the entire process worked so I can actually get going with that. Yeah. All right. I'm well, not good too luck. worried, though. I'm managing. Well, that's good. Yeah. Sounds like you're hanging in there, you know, you're not, you're not really, uh, it's not, it's not a danger zone levels yet, so. Oh no, I'll be fine. One way and another I'll be fine. Of course, needless to say, no sooner do you get unemployed than all the stuff that you take for granted starts leaping up in your face. Uh, everything went out at once in the house. I had to get a new boiler, I had to get a new, uh, oh yeah, that's always heater. Dollars, yeah. Uh, I mean, just thousands of dollars got spent out, and I had some help. Uh, mom gave me some money towards some of that. Uh, because I'm taking care of the house, basically. She can't live here anymore. Um, but for insurance purposes, we need to take care of the house. And right, right. someone occupying it, and here I am. Um, but all those things need to be replaced. Unfortunately, I did get some help on that. Uh, but then all the personal stuff started hitting just in the last couple of months. Like, the car needed $2,000 worth of work on it, and everything went out on that at once. Um, and... I had to get a new crown, I had to get a crown redone on one of my teeth, that was another $1,000, and it's looking like I need to get a new computer. Mine's oh, half boy. years old. So, you know, it's just all the financial stuff hits at once. 
and you look at it and say, uh, I got to worry about income. I got to be looking at something here. Yeah. Well, get you a new uh, computer now because uh, this is the time of year to buy. It's Black Friday, probably when many people are listening to this. So you know. Yes. Shop now. Uh, I've actually got a, a computer whiz out here. He does all my computer work for me. Uh, he's looking to hook me up with a good deal. He nice. knows where all the good deals are, and when he doesn't, he can find them. So he's kind of doing some shopping for me at the moment. Nice. you got a computer guy. I like it. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, that sets the stage here. And uh, as I've said to you uh, before we started the show, we've we've got a slew of questions here from the listeners because uh, since it is Rockskiving, and uh, I'm trying to establish this as our other holiday episode, for the holiday special with Stan Friedman over the last few years, we've, we've turned it over to listeners because Stan does so many interviews, but it's so hard to get a question in sometimes, and it's it's equally the same way with you, but in sort of different respect because we only have you on here every so often, and you're not really part of the big uh, social networking scene. And God bless you for that because it's yeah, a nightmare. Yeah, I, I stay out of it deliberately. <laughs> Why? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised. I've seen, you know, I've never... I'm always, I guess you could say, no, what are the words I'm looking for here? I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No need to apologize. (laughs) Um, This is just coffee night. We're just sitting having coffee. Oh, and I know. If anyone wants to know, this is what I do when I'm out having coffee, and these are the conversations I have with my friends. Exactly, yeah. Pretty much people are just listening in on a phone call between us. To get back to that train of thought, um, people I didn't expect to show up on Facebook, they're showing up, and it's like... You know, William Zabel, who was actually from your neck of the woods, uh, we couldn't find him for years, and all of a sudden it was like, oh, he's got a Facebook page. So I'm almost surprised that you haven't turned up on Facebook yet. Which one is Zabel? I don't trust Facebook. Uh, the problem with Facebook is its contract. It's got a copyright clause in the contract that's just not acceptable. Basically, anything you put on Facebook, they own. Yeah. It's like, you know, don't put any poetry there. Don't put any story ideas. <laughs> you know, <laughs> nothing. In other words, don't put anything on it because they own it. Uh, if they would remove that clause, I'd go on Facebook, but it's there, so I'm not. All right. <laughs> but anyway, well, all, well, these people are the folks who uh, who, <laughs> who sent in the question. So, oh yeah, this yeah, is good. People, this is most the, people are. We cut out the middleman. Now you don't have to go on Facebook. I just turn it over to these people, and I'm like, hey, Bruce is coming on the show. What do you want to ask him? So, sure. between about 24 and 36 hours, we got 18 questions, which was is pretty surprising to me. I mean, we have a vast listenership and a lot of people on Facebook. But still, it was like, well, they really sort of jumped on the chance. So it's uh, quite a slew. Are you ready to dive into the listener questions? I'm gonna, I'll, I'll hit you up with follow-ups as we go along. This is kind of sure. nice because uh, they come in different areas where I never would have thought. Sure. To what go. the heck? Yeah. It's, it's uh, you know, it's experimental and fun. So it's a turkey shoot. Let's have fun. <laughs> exactly. Uh, first one, I guess I'll use uh, first names and last uh, name initial. That way sure. uh, I'm protected by all weirdness. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> no, just letting you know. <laughs> you, you, you can throw pseudonyms at me. I wouldn't know or care. We'll, we will when we get to the message board posters. So, all right. Yeah. But they're not. I don't think we have any hilarious ones this time. We do have a listener named Old Balls on the forum, but he didn't submit a question this time. <laughs> it's a great pseudonym. <laughs> Where's Young Balls? <laughs> Uh, so the first one comes from Scott C., and he asks, uh, how has your community changed since the shooting? The shooting, everyone predicted that it would be huge news for about a week, and then it would just quickly be forgotten, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, obviously, the people that were directly or uh, close to directly affected, the survivors and such, that's going to last for them for a very, very long time. Um the theater itself, we wondered for a long time if it was even going to reopen, and there were, basically they put it up to uh, public questioning. 
Uh, there were lots of things online, and they'd say, well, do you think it should stay up? Do you think we sh it should rebuild? Should it close? What, 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 what? Uh, my suggestion was that it should probably stay open, uh, but given the nature of the crime that took place there, they might want to do something about those two particular theaters, like, I don't know, set up a new IMAX or something. They were due to upgrade anyway, actually. Uh, the life of any theater is usually about 13 years before it needs to upgrade in some fashion or move, and this one was well past that date. So they were kind of due for a remodel and, and kind of getting up in, uh, into the groove, which is exactly what they're doing. Uh, in theory, they're going to open before the end of the year. That's their target goal, uh, probably around Christmas or that neck of the woods. And I'm very glad to hear that. That's actually the best news I've had all year, which tells you how crappy a year it's been. Yeah. Uh, as far as the community goes, uh, if you look at the Aurora Sentinel in particular, you, you won't see too much of it in um, in the Denver Post. They don't talk about it that much anymore. It's First off, it's old news, and second off, they don't want to keep old wounds open. Yeah. Um, the trial won't be taking place until sometime next year, and obviously they want to get all their ducks in a row and make sure everything's nailed down before they go and do that. Hmm. But if you look at the Aurora Sentinel, our you know hometown paper, there's stuff about the shooting relatively often. Uh, I won't see it in every issue, but every second or third issue, I'll see something about it. Uh, so it, it's definitely not out of anyone's memory, but uh, people have moved on. They don't like to talk about it. Yeah. You don't hear people talking about it out in public anymore. Mm. Yeah. That seems like natural human nature almost, so, sure. especially in this day and age. Yeah, it's, it's not even remotely surprising. I'm just glad that, for the most part, the community has been able to put it, sort of put it behind itself. We've gotten past it. You never get over something like this, but we've, we're getting past it. Exactly. All right. So there you go, Scott. Uh, next one comes from Ben Y, and he asks, Could you please ask Mr. Rux, as a journalist or author, is it difficult sometimes to maintain a decorum or serious attitude when dealing with such out-there ideas and theories? It seems to me that while all of your writing is completely interesting and engrossing, there must be times when you have to shake your head in disbelief. Thank you so much. Looking forward to the episode. Oh, sure. That's actually a pretty good question. I was just thinking about this the, uh, last night, as a matter of fact. <laughs> uh, obviously, if you're writing about the type of things that I'm writing about, if you're writing about subjects that are out there, uh, most people don't want to consider them in the first place, and when they do, they consider them uh, not exactly sane. You're, you know, the tinfoil hat crowd. Yeah. Uh, and you do have to be careful of that. When I first wrote my books, I debated doing them under a pseudonym for exactly that reason. But then I thought, no, the scholarship's good, the T's are crossed, the I's are dotted, the sources are cited, I, I need to stand behind this and, and back it. So I did. And I didn't have any kind of reputation to lose anyway. It's not like I was some well-known academic or uh, a government scientist or anything, so I didn't exactly have a reputation to lose. And uh, for that reason, I just went ahead and did what I did. But, of course, if you're talking about Atlantis and Mars and flying saucers, uh, you are going to get curious looks. It's at least going to raise an eyebrow if people hear about it. It's like, nonfiction. Oh, yeah, okay. Well. <laughs> um, and that's to be expected. I'm, I don't blame anyone for feeling that way about it. Um, I do get some serious attention. Uh, I mean, there are people who are archaeologists or anthropologists and such who do read me, and I'm on some pretty impressive reading lists, oddly enough. My books are in the Yale Library, among other places. Uh, so, yeah, I do have some contacts, and there are people that take me seriously, most of whom would not admit to doing so in public. <laughs> I don't blame them a bit. Uh, I'm not offended. Uh, if the situation were reversed, I'm sure I would feel exactly the same way. I was putting my research out there for people who would understand it anyway, 
I mean, I was writing it for the general public so anyone could pick it up and understand, but it went without saying that the people who were really going to pay attention were those who were already paying attention and who knew a little something about it, and they are. They're the primary audience. So, uh, yeah, I'm not sure if I'm answering the question correctly. It is, um, it's a little difficult having to deal with subjects like this and be taken seriously, but I don't have to worry about being taken seriously. I think the work does it itself. Yeah. Uh, if anyone's going to encounter me, they're going to do it through my books. And if if they're reading my books thoroughly and properly, they're going to recognize that everything's well-researched, and they will take it accordingly. So I don't often get... Um, I don't often get insulted or uh, get any kind of untoward comments. Uh, and and if I do, if there are people that don't understand it, I certainly don't have a problem with that. And I, I can remember when I didn't know that much about this stuff either, and I probably feel the same way that they do. It just comes with the territory, and you have to get used to it and recognize it. Yeah, that makes sense, yeah. In a lot of ways, too, uh, you know, you don't you put your stuff out there, and you don't have to deal with all – you don't have to deal with the everyday riffraff of the field, too. I don't know if this guy, uh, Ben, is sort of asking about that in a sense, but it's like you don't – well, that's yeah. one of the reasons that I don't maintain much of a um, a presence. That's why I kind of stay off the web and off the network or off the grid, as you put it. Um, I don't want to be dealing with the tinfoil hat guys. I'm not interested in that. Yeah. Uh, I've done very serious research. I believe I've come up with correct answers. And if I haven't, I've at least got excellent research that's worthy of attention and consideration. Um, and the people that need to pay attention to that will. And I'm sure there are a great number from the tinfoil hat set that do, too. But... You know, I don't want to have to be dealing with them because they really don't know what they're talking about, and frankly, they just want attention. Uh, yeah, I believe in UFOs, and uh, you know, there could be all kinds of different aliens out there. What do you think? You know, they have tentacles or multiple eyes. <laughs> Look, I'm not talking about stuff like that. Uh, you want to read science fiction? That's fine. I've got very definite ideas about what's taking place, and that's what I write about. I think that's why you really resonate with folks because you're very serious about this, and you stand by, you know, the, the conclusions that you've come to. You know, Very much. You know. well, I, I question them, too. I look at all kinds of evidence, yeah. but I haven't seen anything to, to change my opinion. Uh, and I don't even blame people for looking at all kinds of different theories. That's Everyone needs to do that. I'm convinced I've got my answers right. That doesn't mean that I am right. And I, you know, people need to be looking. That's fine. On that, let me piggyback that into one of my own questions here that I just thought of as you were saying that. Now, the books came out... Uh, Fifteen years ago. Okay, I was going to ask you to help me out there. Um, Six ninety-seven. Okay, so in the past fifteen years, now I've talked about the stasis of the paranormal on this show for a while, and and I, I guess I'm wondering because you, you you're pre you, you're extremely confident in your point of view on what you the bottom line that you've come down to. Oh, I'm certain I'm correct. It goes without saying I could be wrong, but I am certain I'm correct. <laughs> that's that's really why I love having you on the show because you you're so bold. Has anything in the last fifteen years though? Given you any pause or or made you I don't know evolve your conclusions at all? No, except perhaps in details, but the details are something that we're always going to be debating. Uh, I believe that the basic thesis is correct. Uh, we're always going to be quarreling dates and uh, in some cases places, but I do believe that the essentially the ancient astronaut theory is the correct one, uh, and nailing down the specifics of that is is really what the field should be about. Now, for the folks who missed last year's Ruxgiving, give a little thumbnail on the overall thesis uh, so they kind of know exactly what we're talking about in case this comes up later on in the program. And I, I apologize because it has been a while, but it, oh, no, it's, it's, quite a it's ancient aliens seeded the human race, and then and then now they're coming back? They're us. We're them. 
Uh, we're just a colony of them, and we've forgotten about it. Uh, the human race came from the human race did not originate on this planet. That's why evolution gets so many bones tossed at it, and why it doesn't answer all the questions. That's uh, because it didn't all take place here. There was some evolution that took place here, but we it didn't start here. Life did not start here. Not human life. We came from someplace else. We may have come from several different planets. I'm convinced that Mars is one of them. Uh, I don't know if there were other planets involved or not. That's what I mean by trying to get down in particulars and, and the detail down some answers. Yeah. Those are difficult questions. We really don't know. Uh, there are all kinds of different theories. Uh, Mars is my pet one because I can see some evidence from that. Uh, but I, I don't rule out that there could be other locations, possibly even outside of our solar system. Another one of those things that needs to be dickered around with. and We just don't know. Um, I just go with the best answers that I've got. But I do think that the human race basically originated on other planets and moved here. Uh, that's why we get confused when we try and nail evolution down. Yeah. And then they left. Now they're coming back. Some of them left. The rest of us stayed here. That's. Oh, I guess you're right. Yeah, that talking. makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're their descendants. Because we forgot about them being here. When they left, um, we knew who they were then. But millennia have gone by. They've been gone for thousands of years. Right. Uh, they still remember us. We don't remember them, except in mythology. We remember them as gods or um, as some alien invading race. We have different names for them in mythology. Uh, the Celtic mythology has got several, actually. There were five different god races that inhabited this planet. They had fought wars among themselves. Uh, they had civil wars. They had wars for supremacy. They got us involved in them. Uh, I believe that shows in all the world's mythologies. Uh, which, if you take those as forgotten history or history told another way, make perfect sense uh, if you're looking at people from someplace else. Uh, Alexander Kazantsev was a Soviet colonel. Uh, he was the first person who really did serious ancient astronaut research. Uh, and anyone who is doing ancient astronaut research is hearkening back to him whether they know it or not. Sitchin... Uh, he was always sketchy about his history and his background. He was kind of evasive when it came to answers, and he didn't like to talk about himself. But he was in the Soviet military, and in the years he would have been in the Soviet military, he would have to have known Colonel Kazantsev. Colonel Kazantsev wrote uh, science fiction, actually, starting in about 1946, I think. He was the first person to propose that the Tunguska explosion in Siberia in 1908 was done by literally a crashing Martian spaceship. Those were the words that he used. Oh, wow. Uh, he was convinced it came from Mars. It had some kind of problem. It changed course, and it blew up uh, over the Tunguska region. And the damage is still visible there today, and they're still studying it. Just hundreds and hundreds of square miles. Yeah, it's of, insane. It was an aerial blast. Uh, if you look up the Tunguska blast, you'll find all kinds of stuff on it, and it's fascinating. Oh, yeah. I'm sure many of the listeners are, are well aware of this uh it's like 100 years ago, right? They had a big anniversary. 1908. Yeah. Yep. It was over 100 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and it's still being talked about. The wreckage is still visible. Um, anyway, he was the first person to actually make that proposal publicly. And he maintained throughout his life uh, pretty much the same thing that I'm talking about, which was that there were people from Mars. They did come here. Um, and that there were still people there. And I believe that, too. Um, if not, then they've gone to someplace else, but they still use it as a base. But Mars definitely figures into the equation. Yeah, it's still in play, if you will. Right. Uh, well, he was definitely going into a lot of ancient astronaut research, going to Sumer and Egypt and stuff like that. Oh, wow. Uh, Sitchin basically took all of Kazantsev's work, popularized it for us over here that had never heard of Kazantsev, and 
wrote it into his book series. Now, this is not so slight Sitchin's research. His research is excellent. Uh, and in fact, he probably did more research into the question than Kazantsev did. And he filled in more blanks and more details, I would say. He stands on the shoulder of a giant, kind of. Yes, he was standing on the shoulders of a giant, and he helped fill in blanks. Uh, Sitchin was a remarkable linguist. He knew several different languages. He was one of the few people in the world that could actually translate cuneiform. Uh, I watched him translate hieroglyphics in the Cairo Museum. That was kind of fun. Uh, and he had the curator standing nearby, and he asked him very nicely, he said, is, is that an accurate translation? And the curator said, uh, I might have changed a couple things here and there, but yeah, it, it's accurate. It'll work. Um, it's kind of impressive when you're standing with someone that can do that. Yeah, that's and pretty he's doing good. it off the top of his head. He can just look at it and translate <laughs> yeah. it for you right there. Right, right. <laughs> now, I'm sure that when he had translated in advance, he just wanted to show us. But he could have... He could read them just right off the top of his head and actually translate it for you. Nice, nice. We've got a Sitchin co- uh, question up here in a little bit, so we'll, oh, we'll sure. keep pressing forward uh, so we make sure. Because I know I feel like if we <laughs> I, I feel like I'm going to look at the clock and it's going to be like two hours and we've done <laughs> we only got to Ben's question. <laughs> that always happens. <laughs> I know. We so. get talking and that always happens. Yeah. So then I'm going to get all these all these people like, <laughs> what happened, man? Uh so and, and this next one actually was one uh, when I read it, I was like, "That's a great question," because I remember having this conversation with you uh, during the trilogy, and uh, and and having thought of you actually over the years since uh, when this subject comes up, and and sort of like wanting to to sort of follow up on it. So, and I don't think I ever would have thought about it in the in the lead up to tonight's conversation. So, kudos to Chuck B, who uh, put in this question. He says, if I remember right, Bruce doesn't believe we landed on the moon. Could you ask him to expound on that and what he thinks the actual state of our space program is? So, excellent question, Chuck. That is an excellent question. Thank you. I go in and out on that, to tell you the truth. My my current belief is, no, I don't think we actually went. I think we probably sent robot probes. Uh, we sent astronauts up. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they landed on the moon. What we Let me phrase it this way. What we saw on TV was fake. That was done in a studio. I think Stanley Kubrick actually did that. There's a researcher whose name I can never recall, uh, who's actually done quite a bit of research into that particular subject, who's quite fascinating. There is a um, documentary coming out, uh, I believe, on The Shining, uh, Kubrick's The Shining, which is the one that most interested me, where he talks about clues that Kubrick was leaving behind that he had actually helped fake the space shots. He was the guy that, that filmed them. Clues in The Shining? Yes. Weird. It's one of the best of, he's, he talks about all of Kubrick's movies, 2001, very heavily. This one focuses on The Shining. It's, it's a, a documentary that's going to be on disc. Uh, I'm trying to remember what it's called. It's like room, uh, what was the room, 237 uh, or something like that in the movie. Uh, the Haunted Room in the Hotel. It, whatever that is, it, it's the name of that room. It's the name of the documentary. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. I've got it on my Netflix saved list. I caught it by accident noticed it was there. I didn't know when someone had made a documentary. Uh, there's, this guy's been writing these articles for years on Kubrick's works. Uh, he was mostly focusing on 2001. But when he hit The Shining, he hit real pay dirt with me because I just hate that movie. I think it's one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my entire life. Oh, wow. It stinks. It's just one of the stupidest movies I've ever seen. It's, it's a horror movie that is not at all scary. It's like a Roadrunner cartoon. It's just stupid. The, people hated it in the theater when I saw it. <laughs> we left the theater hiding our faces. I'm not even kidding you. We were embarrassed to have been seen watching that movie. People were catcalling it. it. It was just awful. And I couldn't believe that Kubrick would make a movie like that. 
Well, the best thing that made sense to me out of all of that was when this guy made the proposal, um, he didn't phrase it quite like this, but this is what he was basically saying. The Shining is not, it has nothing to do with Stephen King. It has to do with Stanley Kubrick placing a confession before the world that he faked the moonshots that only people like us would pick up down the line. Hmm. Why? Because he knew he was being watched. He couldn't tell anyone about it, but he could hide clothes. And he had a, he had a hell of a lot of them in that movie. He, there are, there's lots of things, things you can pick up in 2001 that show it too. Um, what, what, are the, guy, what are these clues in The Shining? I haven't seen it in a long time, so they may not, I may not even recognize this, but, but I mean, I can't, it's so far off from... I know, it sounds pretty far off the wall, doesn't it? Yeah, I love and, it. And if it were anyone but Kubrick, I would not pay attention to this theory myself. But Kubrick was such a maniac about getting exactly what he wanted on every single frame of film. Uh, I mean, he was just... He was nuts. Right. Uh, there are no accidents, almost. There are no accidents, which is why I look at a movie as bad as The Shining and say, how the hell could you make something that's this shitty? How could you <laughs> possibly make a movie this bad? Well, this is why, because he was putting things in there. There are all kinds of things, and I've caught things that, that the researcher had missed. Once he got the ball rolling, I dropped it on a friend of mine who's really big into Kubrick, and he bought into this. He was the same way I was. He said, you know, if this was anyone but Kubrick, and he did some research of his own, and I did some research of my own, and we came up with some stuff that he missed. Um, for instance, when Jack is bouncing the ball off the wall in the hotel early in the movie, you see these murals that are like Indian murals, but they all look like rockets taking off. They look like Saturn V rockets taking off with a jet exhaust underneath them. And he bounces the thing 11 times, and then suddenly it disappears. It just doesn't come back, nothing. The next time you see the ball, the ball is rolling toward Danny, the little boy, in the hallway when he's playing alone, uh, as if it just came out of the wall. Danny is wearing an Apollo 11 t-shirt, and he's kneeling when this first happens, and he stands up like the rocket taking off, and then he goes into room 237, and that's when all the crap starts taking place. It's little things like that. Yeah. When Jack is locked in the freezer, this is another one the guy missed, but we caught it right away, uh, and you wouldn't notice it unless you were thinking about something like this. When Jack's locked in the freezer, the only product that you see with a name on it is Tang, right over his head. Huh. And Pang, of course, is made famous by the Apollo missions. So little things like that, and there are a lot of them. It's not just those. It's just a whole lot of stuff in there. Interesting. What's the so name of this be, movie? Do you remember? Like I said, I think it's called Room 237. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Whatever the name of the – I'm trying to remember now what the name of the room was. I think it was 217 in the book and 237 in the movie. And, and no one knows why that's changed either. Uh, Kubrick does all kinds of weird stuff. Like he has the Summer of 42 showing up. We haven't figured out what that one means yet. But the Summer of 42 comes up in the movie, and it comes in exactly 42 minutes in the movie. Because now that we have discs, you can stop and see where it is. Man. You know that is not by accident. Kubrick did that on purpose, I promise you. Hmm. Everything in his movies he did on purpose. Wow. If there's an accident in a Kubrick movie, it's an accident. And even then, I doubt that it would still be there. He'd find a way to, to delete it and get rid of it. When he released Eyes Wide Shut, he released it on a weird day of the week. I was like on a Tuesday or something. I don't remember now. But it happened to be the anniversary of the day that Apollo 11 was launched. And he put in his will that it had to be released on that day. Why? Why is he hitting that kind of stuff so heavy? So... Yeah, it's, it's a viable theory, I think. It sounds crazy on the face of it, but given that it's Kubrick, uh, and there, there are some reasons to believe that he may have been involved in this. Uh, yeah, I think Kubrick probably faked the moonshots for the government. Wow. See, this is amazing. I'm so glad this guy sent this question in, because I probably, you know, it would have been maybe two more years before it dawned on me to go back and loop around and talk to you about this moon hoax theory. So oh, sure. I'm, I'm stunned. 
I, I give you kudos at least for having something original to bring to the table and not just, uh, I don't know. Well, I, like I said, it's this other guy's research. I'm just adding to it a little bit. Yeah, and no, I was, still. I was glad to find out that this was actually made into a documentary uh, because I've been waiting for this guy to come out with a book or a movie or something to put all that research in one place so it would be easier to get. Does the documentary sort of go down that rabbit hole or is it just sort of a side issue they just mentioned? It's, it's about The Shining specifically in relation to this theory. Uh, he'll probably touch on 2001 and the other movies, uh, but obviously this one is focusing on The Shining. But it's a movie about how he faked the moon landing, essentially. Or yes. clues. Awesome. i got to get this guy on the show. And the movie's yeah, not out yet? I've got to find his name. Yeah, if well, go I'll track the, him down after the show, after we talk. Yes, if you go on the Jeff Rents site, um, which I haven't gone on that much lately, it's really a good site. You have to take your critical skills with you. you there are... A few crazies on there. That's the same for any paranormal site. It's the same for any paranormal bunch, right? So if you just take your critical skills with you, you will find some excellent stuff on that site. Uh, you have to sort the shit from the candy, but you'll find a lot of candy. Uh, if you type in Kubrick 2001, um, Moonshot, any of that stuff in their search engine, I'm sure it'll pop up. Yeah, it's room 237. I just uh... yeah, okay, you found it. Yeah, I looked it up here on on the uh, on the Google machine. Yeah, exactly. This is a guy who should write a book. <laughs> I really wish he would write a book. I'd love to read it. I'm glad that some documentary is coming out on it, and he's definitely someone you'd want to look at getting onto your show. Uh, absolutely. As soon as I see this film, uh, I'm going to track him down. Hopefully, uh, hopefully he'll be down with uh, coming on the show. Yeah, I would love to talk with this guy. Now you've got me like, now I feel like I have to find the... <laughs> well, he's, he's got a viable theory. I've looked over his stuff. His theory is viable. It doesn't mean it's right, but it is viable. Well, anyway, back to unique. back to the the, the original question. Uh, I don't believe if we did go to the moon, we didn't go to the moon the way we said we did. There are simply too many problems with it. Uh, material doesn't fit, for one thing. It's very difficult to get two astronauts to fit in that tiny little LEM, which, by the way, was only test flown twice, and the first time it crashed. And then we just sent it up there and said, oh, you'll be fine. <laughs> I don't think so. That doesn't make too much sense to me. Um, the thing was a, a rickety little construction. The computer they were using to coordinate everything was so tiny, it just had nothing to it. Uh, I mean, video games of 20 years ago had more memory than those things. Yeah. There's just nothing to them. Uh, fitting the rover into the limb, very problematic. If you actually do the measurements on the rover and you do the measurements on the door, they don't quite fit. They said, oh, that was because the wheels folded. Well, that's nice, but you know what? I never did see them take it out of there. <laughs> I never saw them put it back in either. And a guy with a backpack on doesn't quite fit through the door either, does he? Not by measurements. So how did you guys do that? Someone hands him the backpack out the door. <laughs> right. There are just too many problems. Uh, but they're the type of things that unless you're looking at them specifically, you have to have someone there, you know, with a tape measure measuring stuff. And this, it's in the Smithsonian, for God's sake. Yeah. So, yeah, you just do the measurements, and there are people that have. They don't add up. Um, and, of course, if you ask NASA about this, they just poo-poo you and call you crazy if they pay attention to you at all. Usually they're just going to ignore you. But if you hammer them with it, then they're just going to treat you like crap. But they're not going to answer any questions. No. Nah. say, well, we went. Shut up. So what do you think the actual state of the space program is now? I mean, the, the, if, if, beyond any conspiracy, I think we can all agree that the state of the space program is crap, as it is. So, you know, we, we don't even it have a shuttle always, anymore. But what, it was we, always crap. Interesting thing about the shuttle, if you wanted a practical way to go to the moon, and the Saturn V was never a practical way to go to the moon, uh, that's using a sledgehammer. It's very clunky, very heavy, very difficult, and ridiculously expensive. If you wanted a practical way 
to get to the moon. And if we had two things, one being nuclear propulsion and two being actual water on the moon, then it would not be difficult if you used the shuttle. You get the shuttle into orbit. It has a fueling station once it's in orbit so that it can completely refuel on its way out there. Uh, it, it's got nuclear propulsion to assist it. As long as there is water on the other end of it and a runway, and you could build a runway, if you could build a small base there, then you could very easily fly to and from the moon with a shuttle. Very easily. And in fact, I'd thought of that some years before, and lo and behold, there was a guy that worked at NASA that wrote a novel based exactly on that. And he detailed, he went into more detail than what I was talking about. And as soon as I read it, um, he wrote some famous, they made a movie out of it. Uh, see, I don't have these things off the top of my head because I was all right. prepared. We're gonna, <laughs> this is, it's almost like it's like a, it's like the quiz you find in the back of the magazine now. If after the show, right. people have to find all these. <laughs> right. References we made. Uh, there was some famous Hollywood movie that this guy wrote the novel that they they based the movie on. It had to do with NASA and the astronauts on the program. Okay. It was nonfiction. Yeah. Uh, well, this guy also wrote a novel that was based on our getting to and from the moon using the shuttle. And he detailed exactly the plan that I'm telling you now, which is something that, that we'd thought about some years before and said, you know, you could do this. Well, sure enough, 60 Minutes, when we launched the Cassini probe um, to go to Saturn, there was a big stink. NASA broke ranks because there were a lot of people at NASA that were complaining because it had 72 pounds of plutonium oxide on it. And they'd had so many rockets explode on launch, I mean, just a ridiculous number of them over the, the prior years, that they were afraid of that happening with the launch of the Cassini probe. Uh, if that got into the Gulf Stream, which it would, then you'd have a record number of cancer cases popping up in no time flat. And this does raise the question of, and on those other ships that exploded, how many of those had any plutonium oxide on them? Right, right. But in any event, there were 72 pounds of it on the Cassini probe. Um, so when that got launched, a lot of people at NASA broke ranks and said, look, this is dangerous. And 60 Minutes did a piece on this. And one of the things that came out in that piece was that NASA actually had nuclear propulsion on the latter Apollo missions, the latter moon missions. Oh, wow. Now, up to that time, and even today, if you do research today, you, you'll find some people at NASA that say, oh, we don't have nuclear propulsion. Well, look... Some of you don't know that, apparently, or you're going from the talking points, because 60 Minutes did illustrate that you did have it at the end of the Apollo missions. But you'll still find books that say otherwise. Hmm. All right, so we had it. I mean, if we had it, that means we have it. So we do have nuclear propulsion. Yeah, why would they stop using it? It works. And it works, right. Uh, we have also had revealed since the late 1990s, about the time my books came out, uh, the Pentagon came out, uh, the Ballistic Missile Defense Organization, and said that there is water on the moon. Uh, quite a bit of it, in fact. Now, they were saying it's in craters like at the south pole of the moon, um, but there is also more water up there. And this has been coming out over the years, and they did they, they made a press release, like 97, 98, somewhere in there. Uh, you could look this stuff up. I'm sure the information is still there. Okay, so we know there is water on the moon, and assuredly, if they're releasing information on that, they must have known it considerably earlier than they're telling us. But they have admitted, yes, there is some water on the moon, and yes, we have nuclear propulsion. Therefore, the only two things that were a real problem to us going to and from the moon are eliminated if you look at the shuttle program as a means to get there. Um, who would have to know? Um, how many people are monitoring it at NASA? Uh, and as long as no one's really paying attention, yeah, you could be flying to and from the moon on a pretty routine basis if you wanted to. So you're in favor of a secret space program then? It sounds like you are. Yes. Okay. I, I would not be surprised if there was one. 
I don't know that there was one, but I would not be surprised. If I can come up with a practical way for us to get to the moon with a shuttle program, and if I've seen that confirmed by an actual NASA astronaut, then yes, plainly this is a viable plan. And if it is a viable plan, our government is not stupid. Um, if there is a reason for us to be going to the moon, then yeah, we could have been going to and from the moon secretly using the shuttle program since the Apollo program went down. See, for me, on a personal level, I almost, I hope that, wish and hope, <laughs> that there is a secret space program, because otherwise it, the alternative is that we just drop the ball huge on, on space. So, you know, to me, it's like, I, I, I can't imagine that the human race is that bad at, at uh, not taking advantage of these things. Trust me, the United States government is not that stupid. It likes to pretend that it is. It's convenient for it to have people not paying attention to what it's doing. But the United States government is not stupid. If there's something important going on, they know about it. They know all about UFOs. I'm quite certain there is nothing in my research that is new to them. They are fully aware of all of it. Okay, so we'll go to the next question. Tarquin R. asks, Has the entire field of the Fortean and paranormal jumped the shark? Is there anything left for someone serious to get their teeth into? Or is the research now merely confined to researching the researchers? Will we ever get any? <laughs> <laughs> Will we ever get anywhere at all? So he's, he's something like he's having an existential crisis, uh, Tarquin. So maybe we can talk him off the ledge. Although I've been expounding on how the paranormal jumped the shark for years. So well, I, I was going to say I don't blame him. <laughs> um, we're all kind of on the ledge. Don't feel bad. Um, I don't know. I see stuff all the time. Like, sci-fi's got all kinds of crap reality programs and ghost hunter programs and shit like that, um, which are just bogus. But you got things like um, the voice phenomenon thing. The voice phenomenon thing is very interesting, and it's it's worthy of looking at. I don't know how much of that may or may not be faked. If it's legitimate, then it's certainly something worth looking at. The real problem is figuring out when you're looking at something legitimate or when someone's just conning you. Yeah. Uh, trying to nail stuff down. Uh, what I would think is a a more viable question is what are the limits of technology and when will we have reached them? See, I think there's a, a limit to technology and a limit to knowledge that once you've reached it, there really isn't anything more to discover. Uh, but you don't know when you've hit it. For instance, we don't have anti-gravity. We haven't figured out anti-gravity yet. We're working on it. Uh, the ancients, I believe, did have it, and that explains a lot of their megalithic constructions in stone. But we don't know what that secret was, how they did that. And we see evidence of it in, in something like flying saucers or what we call UFOs. So, yeah, they have some understanding of propulsion and of uh, anti-gravity that we don't. But once we have discovered that, is there something more to discover? Uh, are wormholes real? Can you actually travel through wormholes? Is it possible to travel the speed of light? Is it possible to travel to other solar systems? I don't know. Uh, if we find the answer to that, then we'll know. And I certainly don't blame anyone for looking or trying to figure that out. But there's probably some limit to what technology is. Once you've reached that limit, you're done. I mean, there's just really nothing more to discover. You've got it. Yeah. Um, I'm assuming that whoever it is out there, our ancestors, our cousins, uh, the people on Mars, the people from other planets, uh, I'm assuming they probably reached whatever that limit is a very long time ago. Or maybe they're still finding out new things. I don't know. Maybe there is no limit. Maybe there's just always something new to discover. But I just have this feeling that technologically you reach a point where you've, you've discovered pretty much everything there is to discover. Yeah. So when you're looking at something like the paranormal, um, you're getting into the psychic phenomena, things like that. Um, we simply don't have the answers right now. That doesn't mean the answers aren't there uh, or that they won't be figured out. 
And uh, if we do get all the answers to that, uh, well, then you've pretty well learned everything. <laughs> In the meantime, we just keep looking. Yeah, we're a long way to go from there. We have a long way to go from there. And, and plus, how would you know that you found everything? That's true. Exactly. How do you know what you know? That's the thing. That's yeah. That's I never thought of it that way. But <laughs> yeah, you can never really know. You reach the end. Additionally, though, I mean, what do you think? Just uh, as far as you've sort of thought, you sort of answered in, in the form of, I guess, of paranormal inquisitiveness, if you will, as a, as a species almost. But what do you think on, on paranormal research? At the base level, that's going on right now. I mean, we've talked about we, we already state kind of, of it? yeah. The state of it is shit. <laughs> so you say you just jumped the shark, I guess. Is oh yeah, yeah. And if we wanted to take it down straight to the base answer, yeah, I jumped the shark a long time ago. But there have always been charlatans in the field or idiots in the field, and there, there always will be. That doesn't mean that the field isn't worth researching. Uh, you just have to find what's legitimate and what isn't. And a lot of, hell, when I'm doing UFO research, the first thing I have to do is figure out the legitimate reports from the crank ones, because they're going to be a hell of a lot of crank ones, uh, not just from people who want attention, but you're going to have people who are interested parties that don't want anyone else looking into it, uh, intelligence agencies, for instance. They're deliberately going to seed false information out there to try and throw you off track. So the first thing you have to do is sort the shit from the candy. And once you do that, then you can get some serious research done. But that's always going to be a problem. There are always going to be frauds. There are always going to be idiots. And there are always going to be people deliberately messing up the field. You're always going to have people strapping on great big wooden shoes with springs and making Bigfoot tracks. That doesn't mean that there isn't Bigfoot out there to find. It doesn't mean that there is either. But you just have to ignore those assholes. Tell me you're not a Bigfoot fan? You don't think he's out there? Oh, no, I think it probably is, actually. All right, nice. <laughs> I'm just saying that there are a lot of cranks out in the field that deliberately throw false information out there. Oh, absolutely, yeah. For a whole myriad of reasons. It's For scary. a whole myriad of reasons. Yeah. That's why, you know, much like you, I try to keep out of the riffraff because it's too, it's too much riffraff for me. Yeah, well, they're just crazy. <laughs> they're, they're crazy people and they're assholes. And between the two of them, uh, you know, you've got your work cut out for you. That doesn't mean that there isn't something there to find. In fact, there probably is. But you just kind of have to keep your wits about you and, and do the research and be as solid as you can. Uh, did we jump the shark? Hell yeah. But that's nothing new. We jumped the shark probably millennia ago. I bet there were people in Greece that were saying the same question that we are now. Exactly. All right. Corey T. asks... Regarding your work about Hollywood's efforts toward disinformation about UFOs, aliens, etc., have you ever come across any type of official-slash-unofficial commentary, remarks, or statements by actors and or production staff concerning their own beliefs about the movies they were working on? I guess I am asking if they had any type of insider information somehow gleaned from interaction with Studio Brass. Yes and no. Uh, quite a few of them I've actually mentioned in the book. For instance, I haven't actually talked to someone in Hollywood and they said, you know, you must be right. I can remember when, and I haven't had anything like that, no. Um, but I have had uh, what I consider confirmation, or at least confirmation of the possibility, and strong confirmation of the possibility. Um, evidence that there's been meddling at the executive level in Hollywood to change things to better fit actual UFO facts. Whether that was their actual motive or not can be debated. But certainly at the executive level, you can see that things were changed, and they did happen to change uh, to better conform to actual UFO facts, which should not have been known at the time. The best example of that is the thing from another world, the original one, RKO. 
um, RKO was owned by Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes, if anyone was going to know about UFOs in the United States government, Howard Hughes was going to be the guy. I promise you. He was an aviation expert. He was the best guy we had. He was coming up with experimental aircraft. He flew them himself. Is this before it, he went crazy? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he was the best guy we had in the aviation in the aviation field. So if anyone was going to know anything about UFOs, he would have been the very first person who would have been contacted by anyone in the government when they wanted to reverse engineer stuff. Maybe that's why he went crazy. Who knows? Maybe that's why he went crazy. That may have had something to do with it. Um, I wouldn't doubt that, actually. That's an interesting idea. But certainly he would have known about it. So Howard Hawks, who was a friend of his, directs The Thing from Another World, which was based on John W. Campbell's Who Goes There? Uh, pulp Fiction Story. Well, that Pulp Fiction Story was changed considerably from its source material to the movie that is The Thing. Uh, they simplified what the creature was. They made it a, a giant, bald humanoid with spiky fingers. It looked kind of like the Frankenstein monster with a bald head. Hmm. Um, but, except for its size, it kind of conforms to a UFO gray. Uh, it's bulletproof, bombproof, blastproof. They ultimately have to hit it with electricity is what they take it out with. Because it's a robot. And uh, right. If you were to look at it as being a robot, they, they treat it like a synthetic person is what I'm saying. And they overload it with electricity basically to destroy it. They, they destroy it with electricity, which you might do with a robot. I don't know. The point is it kind of conforms to the idea of a robot. It definitely conforms to the idea of a UFO gray except in size. And all of the facts concerning the saucer crash and recovery – are identical to what we now know to be the facts concerning Roswell, only moved to the North Pole instead of to the desert. Hmm. Uh, otherwise, they took all the same facts and just moved them there. So, yeah, I can see at the executive level where things were changed on uh, before a movie went uh, before a movie was filmed, in order to better conform to UFO facts. Um, they even went through several designs for the creature in that movie, and ultimately ended up with this kind of Frankenstein humanoid, which was the least scary thing they could come up with. <laughs> and the joke was, they were saying, oh, well, we want to come up with the scariest thing imaginable. And it was driving people into hysterics. And no, it wasn't. Come on, don't lie to me. It's a fun story, but no. <laughs> it's not scary, dude. I don't know what to tell you. It's James Arness in a bald cap with some spiky fingers. That's it. All right. So you point to that as a, as a, as a key sort of potential uh, case there. Yes. Okay. And there's no question that it was changed at the executive level. There's all kinds of testimony to that effect. Uh, the same is true for The Day the Earth Stood Still. I've got a whole – one yeah. of my chapters deals just with those two movies oh, wow. and with this idea and goes into some extreme detail on just what was changed at the executive level. Nice. War of the Worlds was another one right about the same time. i got to revisit these tomes. It's been too long. Uh, I actually fondly remember sitting out back in the summertime and reading uh, Hollywood versus the Aliens. So. I, uh, I remember fondly sitting and writing them. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure the listeners remember uh, fondly sitting and listening to us talk about it. So, I uh, hope so. I think so. Well, on that note, uh, Corey also said, I want to get it in here. He says, let me say I always enjoy the hell out of the conversation you guys have. Thanks. So there you go. Oh, well, it's definitely my pleasure. Next question comes from Arthur J. And he asks, if you believe that our makers are coming and then followed by soon, so, I don't know if he means, you know, I don't know how you can interpret that. Do you think our makers are coming soon, or do you think they're coming followed by soon? So I don't well, <laughs> I, get the, I get the question. I would yeah. phrase it slightly differently. <clears throat> I don't think makers is quite, quite the right word. Uh, I would say uh, our cousins, our forebears, 
Uh, I can't even say our ancestors because they're still alive. So cousins is probably more accurate. Hmm. Uh, like I say, I just we're them. You know, we we're a colony, and we forgot that we're a colony. Uh, the original colonists went back home, and they haven't forgotten us, and we've forgotten them. Uh, so yeah, they still come here and visit. They take resources. They're fully aware of us. Are they ever going to make themselves known? That's a very good question. And as to the question of soon, that one I absolutely could not answer. I just have no way of knowing. Right. Yeah. There you're looking at something like, you know, the end of the Mayan calendar. Is anything going to happen next month? we got like one month to find out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think we got like uh, four weeks or something crazy. Right. I mean, you got very little time. Just, you know, tough it out. Um, Keep yourself loaded in the meantime and wait till it comes up. And don't spend your bank account out because we don't know that anything's going to happen at all. But you'll find out soon enough. There you go. <laughs> uh, vale asks, what have you been working on lately and will there be any new releases anytime soon? I wish I could say I was working on something. Um, I still write plays. I still work on that. But uh, they're few and far between anymore because I never got anywhere with them. I even had bites on one of them. There was someone who wanted to produce one of them professionally like 25 years ago, but that never manifested. And that's usually what happens in the entertainment business. Uh, the rule in the in, in entertainment is if you get cast in a role, never tell anyone about it until closing night because something will happen to it before opening if you do. Hmm. Uh, 90% of the time, any project that someone talks about, it, it just never manifests. They're even serious about it. But for one reason or another, the money doesn't show up or people back out or any number of different things happen and it just doesn't happen. So since it's not exactly lucrative, uh, I don't write that many plays anymore, but I still do just for my own uh, entertainment, really, I suppose. And you never know. Things might happen. Exactly. Uh, I have made a couple contacts over the years and something might happen. Though even if they do, um, in theater, you're looking at a good two years before anything might actually happen after someone expresses interest. And that's being optimistic. And any time in that two years, the whole thing could just, you know, drop. Exactly. Now, what about writing? Because, I mean, you've I, I, I've joked uh, on the show and in private to you, the emails you send to me are these long, like, they, they, they I feel like you need to be out there somewhere getting this writing out. Do you, are you doing any, like, even private writing just for your own entertainment or amusement or, you know, oh, sure. looking into this? I, I think also Vale's asking... If, if you're working on anything paranormal, especially, you know, I think I think people wonder, you know, 15 years since the last book, do you, do you plan on ever writing anything new? And I'm not, I, I don't, to, you know, I don't want to sound like your mom. I don't want to, no, <laughs> you no, can no, do whatever no. you like. I understand like. exactly <laughs> what you're saying. I would love to say yes. Uh, the problem is, as far as UFOs go, I think I've covered the territory as completely as it can be covered. Uh, I could go into details like Sitchin does, but Sitchin's going into details for a reason. That was his field. Uh, and I do take issue with him on a few things. And I believe he's right in his basic thesis. I don't argue with too many of his uh, translations, but I do disagree with his interpretations upon occasion. Um, so, technically, I think I've sort of exhausted that one. Um, I've thought about writing about uh, the Golden Age pirates and masonry a few times, but I, I wrote a play about that because I think it's actually much more effective than writing a nonfiction book would be. But I have thought about writing a nonfiction book on it because I do have a lot of information and a lot of research into it. Um, just don't know how well it would do. There are lots of Masons that would buy it. I know lots of Masons who will buy anything so long as it has the word Mason in it and a square and a compass. Just because, <laughs> just because they want to look relevant. Yeah. They're, there's a kind of a sad state of affairs with those guys. Some of them are among the brightest people I've ever met, and others are just dumb as a damn post because they they have to make everything relevant to their rituals. It's like, dude, 
Uh, I don't try to make anything relevant to the rituals. The only reason I would talk about it as far as pirates go is because I do see some evidence there uh, in their symbols and uh, actually all kinds of evidence that they were underground masons before masonry was known. So I have thought of, of writing a book about that. You should. That would be amazing. I've thought about it many times over the years. Uh, there's just no realistic return on writing. You don't make money at it, Yeah. putting it simply. It's a labor of love if you happen to have the time and the resources to do it. I had the time and the resources when I wrote my first two books. Uh, I already know, uh, at best, I would probably make about $5,000 on any given book, and that's being optimistic. Um, that would be a lot of work. So your books are huge, so I'm, I'm sure it would right. be like this massive. Well, actually, that one wouldn't be as massive. It would be, it would be shorter. Uh, it would still be pretty big, though. But still, it's just a hell of a lot of work for very little return. I think I speak for all the listeners when I say, do it. <laughs> it, it may happen. <laughs> all right. I, I don't ask anyone to hold their breath because I'm doubtful myself. Yeah. I continue research on it. I, I read a book about pirates just last week, as a matter of fact. I still pick up information. I still read and, and reread stuff. So, yeah, I'm still thinking about it. Right, right. I promised I wouldn't pressure you, but then after I heard about the thesis there, uh, I decided I had to. So, <laughs> oh, there are a lot of people that have wanted me to write that. I, I tell people about it and say, "Oh, you got to write this." Um, no one else is looking into this. Uh, to me, it's just plain as day. There's all kinds of it, it literally leaps out and slaps you in the face. There's archaeological evidence. There's symbolic evidence. Uh, there's ritual evidence. There's just all kinds of stuff that leaps right out at you. Nice. So then you're tying all the way back to the Knights Templar, and there are, there are a whole lot of Masons that don't even like to look at that. Yeah. They just say, no, that's bullshit. That, that never happened. Yeah, it did. <laughs> I don't want to tell you. It did. The symbols are there. They carry through historically. Uh, it's a very, very solid line and easy to trace. So, yeah, there are a lot of people that want me to write that book, and I might. All right. Uh Next one comes from Tony D. He has no question, but just to convey how excited people are about the uh, Ruxgiving special, he just says, fuck yes. <laughs> cool. Yeah. <laughs> Figured I'd be fair and include that in the uh, submissions. So yeah. We got that yeah, well, one covered. <laughs> power to you, man. Uh, Marty L. asks... One question he's always wanted to ask, but he doesn't know if you will have an answer, but here goes. After seemingly random people have had an alien abduction, a lot have MIB encounters or military abductions. I can see how the MIB could know if they too were non-terrestrial. But how, if people don't talk openly about it, would the military find out? This always puzzles me, and I've never heard anyone mention any theories. I've been a follower for some time now and listened to all of the back catalog of your program. Maybe I just missed an explanation for this phenomena. Thanks. Marty from Paisley, Scotland. So there you go. Okay. Uh, first off, I need to know the particulars of the MIB in question. Uh, there have been lots of MIB stories. Uh, the ones that I am aware of, at least the ones that, that strike me as legitimate, uh, the best ones probably came from uh, John Keel in the Mothman Prophecies. He was the one that I would say best wrote about that. There were some other researchers over the years that did write about it. I question how serious they were or whether they were uh, untainted, so to speak. They might have been intelligence people throwing out false information. So I need to know specifics. I can tell you this much. I had MIB around me. I can tell you who those MIB were and how they knew, because I was talking about UFO stuff and I was writing books about it, and they came from the government. I promise you, those guys came from the government. I think nine times out of ten at least, 
they are government guys when they do show up, and they are not remotely subtle. They are there to intimidate you. Uh, they're never going to say anything. They're never going to do anything. They're just there to be seen, and they want to be seen, and they want to make you uncomfortable. They were definitely seen. They did not make me uncomfortable. Uh, in fact, I made them uncomfortable by not being made uncomfortable by them. Now, uh, backtrack here. i got to hear this story. How, what... How did, what, what, tell me about this MIB encounter or encounters. Oh, it was encounters, yeah. plural. Uh, when I got a publisher, mm-hmm. and actually when I was writing, I, they had this activity going on around me. Once I got a publisher, I was actually threatened. Oh, wow. Uh, they, the, practically the same day. It was the same week. I used to have people come hang out. I'd sit at a village inn, all right? I drink coffee. I write. I read books. That's what I do. That's what I do with my life. If you're ever curious, that's it. I get up, I go out, that's what I do. Occasionally I get a little shopping done, uh, I watch some TV when I get home and a few movies from Netflix or what have you, that's what I do. Um, so I go out and there are some nights that there's just nobody there, it's just me, and back then especially. So there I am, literally all by myself, sitting in my little corner booth, and here are two tables, uh, three guys in suits, and another table with two guys in suits, they are not reading a newspaper, they have no food in front of them, they have nothing but a glass of water, not even a cup of coffee, and there they are all in identical penguin or undertaker suits, just sitting there. Um, okay, I'm reading or whatever, a friend of mine comes in and we chat, and he makes comment about the suit convention around me, and we laugh, and I say, well, you know, they're government guys, they want to know what I'm talking about. And, you know, they pull on their face a little bit uh, and continue to ignore us otherwise. Are they talking to each other or are they just silent? No, no. They never say a word to each other. They never have a newspaper. They don't have a cup of coffee, no food, nothing. They're sitting there silently at their tables with a glass of water. Period. And they will be there as long as I am there. Okay, fine. And this went on for quite a long period of time. I could count on seeing them about oh, once a week anyway, sometimes twice a week. They've showed up quite a bit. Did you ever? Now you know, did you ever say anything to these people after a while? I mean, after a while, I feel like I would no. be like, "Dude, stop following me. Why, why are you guys doing this?" No, I said that kind of stuff. Just whoever I was talking to, I just occasionally we'd comment on them. Say, "Do you suppose we should invite them over or something?" Say, "No, they're just best doing whatever they're doing." That's when they pull on their face. What do you mean, pull on their face? <laughs> well, they were uncomfortable, like uh, like they don't want to be noticed that way. Okay. They want to be noticed, but they don't want people laughing at them, which is essentially what we were doing without actually laughing. Mm. Point is, we're calling attention to the fact that we know they're there and we're not impressed. All right. Um, and yeah, that went on for a very long period of time. Then the week I got a publisher, a guy actually showed up and threatened me. Guy in plain clothes. He did engage me in conversation. How'd that go down? Uh, he saw my manuscript. I had my reader's copy, uh, the galley, as he put it, sitting off to the side. Uh, he asked a question about it, sitting in the booth next to me. Uh, We chatted for about 10 minutes. He was kind of interested, said, would you mind if I join you? I said, sure, no problem. And in the middle of one of my sentences, he interrupted me and he said, you know, I'm not a psychopath. Guys have to do what they have to do. Everyone's got jobs they have to do. You know, some people, there's not a damn thing wrong with them, nothing at all. But they could end up in a mental asylum in some other state. No one even knows who they're there. Nothing wrong with them. But they can end up there for years. No one even knows that they're there. He went on in this vein for about five minutes. Jesus. And um, got exactly the reaction I think you can imagine the reaction being. I refused to be intimidated, but he did uh, He did raise my hackles. Mm. I was not real happy about that. You weren't or he was? And I was not real happy about that, no. Yeah. 
Jeez, yeah, I can imagine. And they left a lasting impression. How did the conversation end then after you, after you did this little rhetorical soliloquy? Well, first off, once I once he ran that little bit out, I knew who had sent him. I can tell you that straight up. As soon as he used the word, I am not a psychopath, he said, I am not a psychopath. I can name, I can tell you the name of the guy who sent him to me. He was my roommate when I was in Cairo on the first trip of Sitchin. Because uh, I called him a psychopath at one point, and I know that that guy sent him. He's Air Force Intelligence. He worked Army Intelligence. He's CIA. So Jesus. I know that's the guy who actually sent him. Oh, my God. That's just weird, man. I'm, oh, it's, you've it's left me unplugged. speechless here on this one. I, this is amazing. <laughs> I had no it's idea where unplugged. this conversation was going to go, and it's gone out on some crazy roads. Wow. Well, once he'd got done with his little thing and saying that there were people that were not happy about what I was writing about, my response to him was, oh, you mean I'm not going to get that invitation to the Bush Christmas family dinner this year? And I was so expecting it. And the conversation continued on in that vein until the end. And eventually he just finally left. We, we talked shop. Hmm. We talked shop for a while. It's like, okay, you came to deliver your threat. You've done it. Now, you want to talk or not? Fine. You can leave any time or we can continue chatting. But if all you did was come to threaten me, uh, not only was it a stupid blunder, but it was a waste of time. Because the books are going into print regardless. I've already got the publisher of the contracts are signed and they've got the manuscripts. Which means if I end up dead in a ditch, the books are still going out. And no one, the mafia, does not threaten a witness after they have talked. That's just stupid. Right, right. If something happened to you after that, then it would be like, it would raise more attention to all the stuff. That's right. That's pretty much what I said. <clears throat> and that was how that conversation went. Interesting. But yeah, I definitely made an impression. I remember it to this day. I will always remember it. So you think that, so these people are out there just to sort of shake down people who are doing research? Oh yeah, absolutely. And to keep tabs. And they've got their various agendas. They come from the government though. I mean, just straight up, they come from the government. If you've got guys hanging around you in black suits, uh, making you uncomfortable. They are there in those black suits to make you uncomfortable. That is their job. That's what they're there for. Right. That's what I was just thinking. they got to collect a paycheck because otherwise, <laughs> otherwise right. they're just employed guys in suits who, uh, you know. <laughs> that's right. They're, well, I'm sure they pass on information or whatever they hear, too, so yeah. we gave them an earful. But basically, we just carried on our conversations as if they weren't there, and occasionally we would make comment of the fact that, well, there they are. <laughs> but it didn't stop us talking. Wow, that's just a crazy, crazy story. I'm, uh, like I said, I'm left speechless on this one. Wow. So since then, then the book came out, and nothing, nothing bad's happened. So that's good. No. I've had other guys sit and chat with me who I'm absolutely certain came from the intelligence establishment. Uh, one of them, I'd never seen this guy in my life. He just came walking into a coffee shop, and I saw him. The second I laid eyes on him, I said, watch, that guy's going to strike up a conversation with me in a half hour. He struck it up in ten minutes. Oh, wow. Complete stranger. Never met him before in my life. And here he is suddenly talking about my books. <laughs> he was from Colorado Springs. Did he mention, yeah, like, that he knew who you were or something? Or like, no, he knew, he knew who I was before I came walking in the door. Oh, weird. He knew. He was from Colorado Springs. He was sent to talk to me. Right, but I mean, when he struck up the conversation, was he like, did it come no, up he, organically, he or was he like, are you Bruce Rooks? <laughs> no, he uh, just asked some subtle questions about who I was and what I was writing, and someone said, oh, he writes books, oh, what about, and oh, really? And then he comes over and talks to me. So, you know, he's got his plausible deniability. Yeah. But yeah, it took him all of 10 minutes. You're going to make me paranoid now if I, I'm going to not talk about any of this shit with strangers. Stranger danger now. No, you just have to recognize that it comes with the territory. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, one thing, if they're paying that much attention to you, you're probably on to something. Exactly, exactly. Yikes. Just to sort of, uh, 
I want to unwrap Marty's question just a little bit more, though, uh, and, and just ask, I, I guess part of the – you sort of answered that you think MIBs are – are gov- I guess I guess that even if MIBs are government alongside the military abductions, I guess the question this person has is how does the government know that the person has been abducted by an alien if they don't tell anyone? They've got their radar open all the time. Uh, first off, I'm not sure that the military actually does abductions. Maybe they do. Uh, that I really couldn't tell you about. Yeah, he the means MIBs, like post-abduction abductions. Right. The MIBs, that's something different. I've had that. I've just related that experience to you. I haven't had any other kind of experiences with MIBs, uh, but those I have. Hmm. I don't know about the military abductions. How does the government know? Because they keep their eyes and ears open. Uh, they got, that's what the National Security Agency does. I think yeah. that's why the National Security Agency was created. Now, mind you, it does a lot of things. I mean, it's paying attention to foreign governments and all kinds of different communications, et cetera, and so forth. But I believe it was actually formed specifically to keep tabs on anyone that had any kind of connection with uh, UFO activity, specifically abductees. I believe they recognized very early on that a great number of human beings were being abducted by these people clandestinely, and they wanted to know what was going on and why. Hmm. What they thought was taking place, and... I'm not fully convinced that they are wrong. In fact, and to a certain extent, I'm sure they're right, uh, is that abductees were being used without their awareness for sabotage activity down here, Manchurian candidate stuff. Only I don't believe they've ever been used for There's never been an abductee that's been tied to an assassination or a murder or anything like that. But I don't think that it's too far out of bounds to suggest that uh, some abductees might have been used for sabotage activity down here. They'd be perfect. They wouldn't know that they'd even done it. What do you mean? Okay, the UFO intelligence picks up the same people over and over and over again. UFO abductions are not random. Uh, or there may be random occurrences, but they are very rare. Most UFO abductees are abductees from childhood or even infancy on uh-huh. for the rest of their lives. Yeah. They keep coming back to the same people over and over and over and over and over again. Why? Because they're using them. They're picking up information from them, and they are using them. One of the things that they are doing, they're under post-hypnotic control. There is no one involved in this research that will say anything other than that UFO abductees are hypnotically controlled. There are probably other methods as well, but the point is they're mentally dominated and they're mentally controlled. Right. So, uh, they are basically Manchurian candidates. They don't know what they are. They're sleeper agents. They could be triggered to do something. Now, obviously, if the government noticed that, of course, they're going to study it very, very closely and very, very thoroughly. Uh, and I believe they have done from the beginning through the present day. Hmm. So the government's using these people for sabotage, possibly. The sabotage is what really struck a chord with me. That's possible. Uh, I, I definitely think that the UFO intelligence is doing it. How that? All right. So I thought maybe I was confused then because that, no, that's what I, I thought I heard. So what do you sabotage? How though? Like what are they sabotaging? Oh, anything. Uh, do you happen to be living near a military base? Who me personally? Not really, but close. And some people do. <laughs> well, yeah, but so. And and what they have the person go run in and do something crazy or something like that? Possibly, or they pick them up and drop them off and have them do it, hands on the ground. Weird. I do believe that sort of activity takes place. To me, I can't account for a lot of things otherwise. That just makes more sense to me than anything else. Yeah, but I haven't really heard too many stories about people that are abductees that they don't like. So I guess let me reframe this. Where So it's you're talking about maybe incidents that happen and 
you're like, why'd that guy do that? And it turns out actually he was an abductee and, and they did it, but we yep. never like get that second part. And they wouldn't even know. Right. Yep. Interesting. Okay. I am reasonably convinced that that sort of thing takes place. I don't know with what kind of frequency, and even if it doesn't, it makes perfect sense to me that the government would think so all the way from the start. It explains why you had MKUltra. It explains why the mind control experiments. We tried to palm it off saying that the Russians and the Chinese had it. We knew they didn't have it. Their own internal memoranda proved that. They knew for a fact that the Russians and the Chinese had no such thing while they were going around telling everyone and faking stories to prove that the Russians and Chinese had it. They were lying. They knew they were lying. So why would they go to such extreme lengths and such dangerous projects, uh, sometimes I think with people losing their lives, to study the subject? Because somebody had it. Somebody that they couldn't tell everyone about. But you seemed skeptical just then when I first posed it as the government using these mind control people to sabotage. So you think it's more likely the aliens are doing it than the human, than the government? I believe it's a possibility that the aliens do it. Um, let me put it this way. The CIA, when they did their studies, obviously they were trying to duplicate the process yeah. in order to understand it. Has that process been used offensively? I am certain it has. Uh, I'm sure. I'm quite certain that we have sleeper agents down here and that the Manchurian candidate is not uh, completely off base at all. But in fact, it's probably very close, probably very close to reality. Uh, there are a lot of books on MKUltra, on the mind control experiments. They're pretty thorough. And yes, I'm convinced that that's actually taken place and that our government and other governments uh, have used them in offensive ways as clandestine agents, however you want to put that. Yes. But I consider it not unlikely at all that the UFO intelligence has used people down here as hands for sabotage. Interesting. Makes you wonder why they would even want to do that, but that's... Oh, every reason in the world. Yeah, I suppose. Uh, they have sabotage they want to perform down here. What better way to do it than you don't even have to get your hands dirty. You can have someone do it uh, kind of by remote control. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Yeah, that makes sense, too, because the aliens don't want to show themselves, so they'd use a human sure. surrogate. All right. I think that covers all the areas of uh, Marty's question, so we'll get into the next one here from Alex, because I feel like that's one that's a question there that could send us down a whole rabbit hole, and like I said, it'll be four hours, and we'll be like, wait a minute, we still have questions we have to answer. So. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> What's your Thanksgiving song? No, 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 Pass no. the cranberry sauce, we're having mashed potatoes. Oh, the turkey looks great. Len. Thank you for loving me. Len. Thank you for being there. Oh, God. Everyone's thanking. Len. The whole world's thanking you. Stop. Thanking Len. us for thanking Stop. you. <laughs> You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Pass the cranberry sauce. We're having mashed potatoes. Oh, the turkey looks great. Thank you for loving me. Glenn. Thank you for being there. Please. Thank you for loving me. Everyone's thanking. The whole Glenn. world's thanking you. Thanking us for thanking you. The, uh, the next one comes from Alex1, who starts out by saying yes. So he's very excited about the show. Uh, he says, question for Bruce. I've been reading many criticisms regarding Zechariah Sitchin's translations of various ancient texts. Having traveled to Egypt with him, would you consider this a valid criticism? Or, in your view, are his translations acceptable? We kind of went over this a little bit, but uh, I feel yeah, like he's I've seen evidence that at least some of his translations are acceptable to uh, museum curators. Uh, he told me, and I believe him, that he had had many private conversations with a number of museum curators, and he would not name names, nor did I ask him. Uh, 
Uh, but he made a point of saying he didn't want to name names. But I still believe him that uh, there were several museum curators who believed that his theories were correct, uh, but they couldn't do anything about it. Their their answer to him was, what would you have us do? Have everyone that got an Egyptology degree go through it all over again? And you know, the answer pretty much is yes. Eventually, they're going to have to. Actually. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it depends. Do you want to learn something or do you just want to keep repeating mistakes and being idiots? <laughs> so it really came down to questions of economy uh, and the ability of people to understand. It would take a long time to take a bunch of, you know, hidebound people who'd gone through the old school and re-educate them to right. any of this. Uh, and in a sense, that's kind of what Sitchin was doing. He's talking to people like me who are listening to him and paying attention and saying, you know what, I think you're right here. He was sort of doing a grassroots Egyptology flip, if you will. Yes. And a very effective one, too. It seems that way. I mean, they got a program called Ancient Aliens, for Christ's sake. That's right. So. That's right. It, it's know. becoming more and more uh, commonly known. I mean, obviously not everyone accepts it. But the point is, ancient astronauts have been discussed, uh, at least in this country, since the 1970s, early 1970s. Uh, and in Russia, they were being discussed a great deal earlier than that. So it's not a new theory. But back then, it was just a few people on the fringe, and I was one of them, who were studying those things. Now, it's kind of common knowledge. Uh, whether how many people accept it or believe it, that's a whole different question. But the idea of it? No, everyone's aware of the idea of it. Okay. And of some of the history or uh, reasons why it looks like a valid theory. All right. So you stand by Sitchin's translations of, uh, you know, you, obviously you can't swear by them or anything like that, but you, you hold it in, uh, in high uh, regard. Yes. I, we'll say. I, I consider his translations to be... Um, no more invalid than any other experts. I don't think he was slanting too much. I do have to say, um, Sitchin did make some errors, I believe, uh, and he was he was known to slant his case a little bit. He didn't necessarily always present evidence quite fairly, but I believe that he was basically true to the arguments. Um, he didn't actually make anything up, and I believe his translations are pretty valid. Okay. Uh, Red Sun Superman asks, would you consider using Twitter in the future to share your opinions on various films, books, shows on a routine basis, albeit in short 140-character bursts? I notice you have provided lengthy reviews on Amazon.com for various movies and books, so you like providing your opinion. Twitter might be a better way to connect with those who have read your books and find your opinion valuable. Uh, I would be more inclined to create a blog. Actually, yeah, it seems like yeah. Having read Bruce's emails, 140 characters is laughable. So, yes, <laughs> that's not a shot. At, I, I that's a shot at Twitter, not Red Sun Superman. That's, I like, don't do shorts. Yeah. Although, ironically, I, uh, at fiction writing, I'm better at short stories than anything else. But um, yeah, I don't really do short. I, if I were going to do something, I'd do a blog. And in fact, I've had friends uh, suggest that to me. I'm just such a babe in the woods when it comes to that stuff. I've never done any of this. I'm telling you, just send your stuff to me. I'll post it up in all of America. I'll take all that shit out of the way. Just send me what you want to post. I don't care. I may do that. People want to read your stuff. That and if uh, – I know friends that could set me up on a blog real easy. It's not hard, I know. I just, I've just i never done it. Yeah. Uh, if someone got me set up on a blog, I'd probably be blogging quite a bit. All right. Well, that's something for me to work on then over the holidays because I've been trying to get the BOA set up into a blog format. We could bring you in. A, just in case anyone's curious, since they found the Amazon reviews, I haven't done any of those in 10 years. The reason for that was uh, I used to automatically connect from the computer to the site, 
somehow or other, when, probably must have been when the software was reloaded or something, it lost the password, and I never could find the password. Oh, I don't weird. remember what it was. I thought I had it. And they were changing our email address literally every week back then. So it could have been any one of 20 different email addresses, and I don't even remember what they all were. Uh, in any event, I couldn't reconnect to it. So that's why there weren't any more of them. Okay. Now, I did ask that these be serious questions, but Red Sun Superman asked sort of a goofy question, but actually that led me into looking into the origins of the goofy question, and now I want to know more, so we're going to include this one. It's kind of a silly question, but uh, he asks, do you think Fred and Daphne from Scooby-Doo had sex? Uh, he mentions your Shag and Scoob come of age review on Amazon, which I had to, I was like, what is this guy talking about? So then I, I, I dug into it and found the review and you, in the review, you mentioned this movie. I don't have the name in front of me. I think it's, uh, versus aliens or something. It's kind of ironically something right along, <laughs> right in your wheelhouse. And, and, and you allude to that they, that they allude to Fred and Daphne having sex at the beginning of the movie that, uh, only adults would understand. So what, yes. so what's the, yes, what's the story behind that? Uh, I'm trying to remember exactly which one that was. Those movies are a lot of fun. I should preface this by saying I'm, I'm a Scooby-Doo freak. I just love Scooby-Doo. Uh, there are very, very few incarnations of Scooby-Doo that I don't love. Uh, I do have a thing for family entertainment, if you want to call it that. It's, it's kind of rare anymore. You don't see too much of it. Scooby-Doo is probably top of that list. It's Scooby-Doo and the Alien Invaders. That's Scooby-Doo the and the Alien Invaders. Yes. Uh, did they have sex? Yes. Yes, they did. Uh, I believe <laughs> they were deliberately alluding to that. They make lesbian jokes on Velma. Uh, they do a lot of adult stuff in those movies that kids would never catch. They would never catch any of that. But yes, they are putting those things in those movies that directly relate to uh, adult sexual humor. Interesting. But yeah, it's from the year 2000, so it sounds like it's sort of the uh, postmodern Scooby-Doo in a way. Oh, yeah. Scooby-Doo has improved so much over the years, it had to. It, otherwise, it could, it could only become a parody of itself. And there are different versions of Scooby-Doo, certainly. Some of them are more juvenile. Those those are usually not as good. Uh, but the ones that kind of catch on or are fun are the ones that appeal to adults every bit as much as they do kids. Yeah. I'll have to look that one up for sure. I want to see these uh, illusions. Well, practically all of them from that whole era. I forget how many movies they made. I've got most of them. Uh, you can pick them up for cheap. But, yeah, I'm just a Scooby-Doo nut. I love Scooby-Doo. <laughs> the next question comes from Robert C., who wants to know about your views on the fact that Hollywood is using subtle hints to acclimate the herd, not only in terms of ETs as discussed on BOA Audio in Season 4, but also many other subtle hints, particularly in the movie The Matrix, showing that dude's ID card with date of birth 9-11-2001. He has seen other examples, as he's sure you have too, and he thinks that would lend more credibility to the e to your ET angle. So... Wow, that's yeah. interesting. I was unaware of the 9-11. I don't even doubt it. Uh, especially considering it predated 9-11, that does make it interesting. Yeah, there's quite a few of those little 9-11 uh, hints uh, in the mainstream media before 9-11. Oh, I'm, I'm one of those people that believes that we let it happen, absolutely. We either let it happen or made it happen. Take your pick. Now, do you think the subtle hints leading up to it were from the government? This is what this guy's suggesting. I feel like maybe it's more just like people picking up something in the ether and, and putting it in by accident. But what do you Possible. think? That's really hard to say. Uh, I'm with you on that. I don't know. Sometimes I think things are just kind of in the ether. Uh, in this particular case, uh, there's a lot of really squirrely stuff the government gets itself involved in. Right before 9-11, uh, literally the day before they released, uh, the government released, 
an article on Operation Northwood. Some of you may remember this. You could look it up on the web and it would confirm all this for you. Yeah. Operation Northwood was Kennedy era, uh, about the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, when they were proposing uh, that the CIA create a terrorist event in order to justify military attacks on Cuba, and by extension, any other country that you wanted it to be. So right before 9-11, I think it was right on September 10th, pow, they happen to release this, there's a newspaper article on it, hits the news, and the very next day, pow, 9-11. Okay. <laughs> well, however you want to read this, people, however you want to read this, you can either believe that a bunch of guys with box cutters in caves in Afghanistan just happened to know the very day that we were going to be running Pentagon exercises that Dick Cheney would be in charge of, of running airplanes into buildings because that's what was taking place on 9-11. So you can either believe that they just happened to know that and managed to squeeze by all the security and get this done, and that after the first plane hit, we waited. How long was it before the second plane hit? And that during that entire time, nobody contacted Dick Cheney and said, is this part of the drill? And that after one hit, we didn't do something to stop any further things from happening? You can believe that if you want. I've got some pyramids I'd like to sell you. <laughs> Really, just a billion dollars down. <laughs> and I, I, I guess to follow up in a way on Robert's question, he's sort of hint, he's hinting that the government is using these subtle hints. Well, I guess he's not hinting it. He's suggesting that the government's using these subtle hints to, I guess the key word here that stood out to me in his question is acclimate the herd. Do you think it's sort of the old uh, revelation of method concept that yes, part of the grand doing conspiracy yeah, is to reveal the government loves revealing itself. In cryptic fashion and, and laughing at you while they're doing it. Yeah, they love that. They love having clever little acronyms. You remember how when we first were invading uh, Iraq, uh, I forget what the name of the operation was. Operation Iraqi Liberation, that was it. Yeah. Oil. They changed that to Operation Iraqi Freedom because oil was just a little too obvious. Yeah, they went oif. <laughs> yep. But originally it was Operation Iraqi Liberation. Huh. I never even thought of that. I never even... Put that all together, yeah. Weird. They love that shit. Um, all right. The next question comes from David K., who says, I would like a question or two about the first V series and the second. And as such, he'd like to know your thoughts on the recent update, as well as what you thought of the original, which he thought was wonderfully subversive for the time. Interesting. Um, he's just asking what I think about the difference between the two. I guess, yeah. He he wants to know your thoughts on the original, your thoughts on the recent update. So that's the two questions, I guess. <clears throat> well, the original, I think that was actually a very deliberate part of uh, on the part of Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was interested in trying to acclimate people to this subject. He'd had UFO sightings himself that he was very excited about when he was governor. In fact, um, one interviewer knew about that and asked him about it and said that Reagan got really animated when he asked him that. said, oh, yeah, and he was telling him all about it. Then he realized he was talking to a journalist, and suddenly he clammed up on it and didn't say another word. Huh. So I think that Reagan was very interested in, in publicizing UFO awareness uh, and actually did quite a bit of work toward that end. V would definitely have been part of that. I'm assuming that he wanted to demonize the subject because usually Republicans love to demonize the subject. It makes for better in military spending, and that's their single pork barrel project. Uh, they like to have the Democrats for all the pork. Oh, yeah, that's true. Uh, the Democrats have got a shit ton of pork barrel projects. The Republicans have one. It's called the military. They like to sink every bit of money that they possibly can into it. <laughs> so anyway, that was probably part of the 
subliminal exercise in trying to scare everyone into believing that these human-looking aliens are really evil reptiles that want to consume the entire human race and do horrible things to us. Uh, you're going to get more defense funding that way. Yeah. But the primary thing I think that series accomplished was the special effects of just having the flying saucers parked over all the major cities of the Earth uh, like it's nothing and the way that that would change people's awareness. Because you know they have to have had this conversation in intelligence circles and with the Joint Chiefs. You know, what happens when we publicize this? <laughs> if we don't, this is going to happen someday, and how do we deal with that then, and what is the reaction going to be? Right. Uh, and I do think that's what's going to happen, frankly. I don't think the government's ever going to publicize it until such time as uh, they park over our cities or make themselves incredibly obvious. And at that point, they're just going to be running to the microphones as fast as they can, saying, we knew all along, guys. We knew all along. We were just trying to protect you. <laughs> so that's the original. What did you think of the uh, the updated version that was out a couple of years ago? I saw – how many episodes of that did I see? I might have seen as many as five of those. I think I dropped out right when you did. Yeah. Uh, I didn't drop out of it because I didn't like it. I thought it was fine. I've never much cared for V. I need to preface this. Okay. Uh, v is just military propaganda bullshit. It's, it's, a, it's a war story – updated to include aliens and scare everyone as far as aliens are concerned. Right. I heard it was like an allegory for the Nazis and shit. So. Yeah, they kind of like to paint it up that way. Because the they can't time. say it's an allegory for aliens. So this right, idea. right. Um, I just never was that impressed with it. It was too simplistic for me, too comic book. Most of the stuff in the Reagan era was. Uh, the update had very nice, uh, predictably, it had great special effects. I thought it had a very good cast. Um the scripts were better than I expected. Uh, I wasn't having a bad time with it. I kind of enjoyed it. It was on at an awkward time. I was usually catching it after the fact on something like Hulu uh, at work when I had time to kill. But that was right about the time that that site went down, and I ended up uh, moving to the other site that went down last year. <laughs> this is what happens in security. You get moved from site to site because you just lose the contract. Yeah. It just goes down. Anyway... Uh, my car was dying, the site went down, I got moved over, and I just sort of forgot about it. I never got back into it. The next thing I knew, it wasn't on anymore. <laughs> I had predicted it wouldn't be on anymore, even if it was any good. I predicted it wouldn't be on anymore. I don't think it was bad. It's just that there's not much you can do with V. It's pretty simplistic. Right, right. It turns into a basic sort of us versus them. Yep. Yeah. It's an us versus them army man story, just with a little bit more sci-fi stuff, and these guys happen to be from another planet. Uh, Battle of Los Angeles, you know. Yeah, I tried to follow it, but I gave up on it. I didn't have any sort of disruption, and you know, in my habitualness, I was just like, "Enough's enough. I can't follow the show anymore." I think I watched through the I watched through the first season, which I think was truncated to like seven or eight episodes, and then when the second season started, I was like, "Do I want to get on board with V?" <laughs> Do I want to get sucked into this? Yeah, and then I was like, "You know, I think I can let V go because I don't think it's because his ratings it barely survived to make a second season, and a show like that, unless it starts out." coming out of the gate, like, with a big bang, like, lost, and then slowly, you know, the audience, it slowly loses an audience, but still, by the end, it's got a decent audience. This show started out of the gate, like, weak as hell, and then, with a, with a serialized show, you're always losing viewers, it seems. Uh, you know what started out every bit as weak or weaker? Was the X-Files. Uh, the first six months, it had no ratings at all. It's amazing that Fox uh, renewed it and kept it going past the 13 episodes. That's one of the things I argue for government influence. Because his ratings did not support it. Well, I guess you, you might wonder then about Fringe, because that's kind of the same story. So, Sure. 
I don't know if you follow that. I, I haven't got into that. I'm going to wait till the whole series is over because uh, I, I do the I, exact I, same thing. Yeah. I have friends that have tried to get me to watch it for quite a while. I caught uh, two or three episodes along the way. Again, not bad. Uh, I've just got other things to do. Yeah, and ever since Lost, I just can't can't get on board with uh, these serialized shows. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Abrams kind of tripped over his thing there. Right, right. So I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. If, it, if if I watch all of Fringe when it's finally done and I'm like, that was a very satisfying story pretty much from beginning to end and it wrapped up nicely and tightly, then, you know, I'll patronize the uh, the makers in, in subsequent things. So, Sure. The makers have lost? No. I won't follow their shit now. <laughs> well, it was just, in you know, what, seven years? I mean, the thing went on and on and on and on and on and they get you sucked in and dragged along and then just... Yeah. Come on, guys. <laughs> I could have made up something. You didn't have anything up in the last three weeks. You could have made something up in the last three weeks that would have tied everything together. Exactly. You could have done it. Yeah, so frustrating. And as far as the second V goes, part of the other thing that turned me off was it, it, it. You remember it was like Juliet from Lost. She was like the yeah. FBI agent who was sort of leading the underground and also yeah. had one foot in the government camp. But it was like she was a New York FBI agent, and in the eight episodes I saw – in the first season, they never, it never like got into what the White House or the federal government was doing about all this, which just, it got completely, seemed to me completely unbelievable, so. Well, that was kind of a flaw with the original V2, I think. Uh, really, it was just too simplistic. It didn't get into realistic questions. It evaded realistic questions in favor of, you know, just let's have some boots on the ground shooting going on. Right. All right, next question comes from Susan F., she wants to know what you think of the recent flourish of films and TV series about the paranormal and ghost hunting and ponders if it is being used to mold our thoughts on the matter. So we kind of touched on that a little bit as far as the revelation of method, but this is a different, so this is an acclamation, I guess, uh, or, or yeah, molding. That's an interesting uh, word to use. So you think they're sort of shaping people's thoughts on the paranormal via this stuff, or is it just cheap and easy to produce and, and, and you know, it's, as my friend Greg Bishop likes to call it, UFO porn. Six of one, half a dozen of the other. Uh, I think it's mostly UFO porn. <clears throat> mostly. I could be wrong. I was commenting earlier on, you know, ghost hunters shows. They're just crap. This is just bullshit. <laughs> yeah, paranormal. Let's <laughs> turn on a green camera. Did you see that? Did you see that? What was that? That's you being overdramatic about absolutely nothing. That's what that is. <laughs> uh, and it costs nothing to produce these shows. Just zip. So I think that's the primary appeal right there. Uh, theater started to go to crap all the way back in the 1970s, uh, about the time that Pippin was produced. Uh, and then along came a chorus line and everything went straight to shit because everyone was just looking for a super way to, a way to put up super cheap shows that you would get a huge return on. Well, what do you do? Let's have no set and a bunch of people in leotards who just uh, stand forth and sing their individual numbers. And then you have cats and all this other kind of crap. Uh, that's where it all started to fall to shit. And TV was just a little late jumping into that bandwagon and that party. Uh, but yeah, they've discovered the cheap and easy way too with reality TV shows and bullshit paranormal shows. And they are just bullshit. Uh, I can't remember the last time I saw anything on a paranormal show that I, I had the remotest belief in at all. Uh, I was kind of interested to find out that one of the UFO shows, or I think it was just one of the paranormal shows, did do a 90-minute segment on Travis Walt. Uh, that was actually kind of interesting because um, Walton hadn't met up in front of the cameras and, and told his story for a very long time. And maybe the first time he's ever gotten up and been able to tell it at any kind of length. I was picking up a few details that I hadn't gotten from his written accounts. They didn't conflict with anything he'd said before. But 
It was just interesting to hear him say it. Yeah. All right. So do you think beyond, I guess, uh, do you, so, so are you all right dismissing sort of, uh, an agenda to mold in a way? Do you think there's anything like that going on? I don't see why, I guess you have to wonder why the government would want to mold people's thoughts on, uh, I can see UFOs, I can tell you ghosts where. and Bigfoot. Why, why would they care about what people think of that stuff? They don't, but they have a vested interest, and this very much fits into my book, they have a vested interest in trying to create a media circus atmosphere. Okay. Um, the, the Amityville Horror was on again just the other night, the original. The Amityville Horror was a straw dog if ever there was one. It's just a BS story from start to finish, and I never did buy it. It was just bullshit. I, was, by the, I don't remember what page I got to. I think by page 30 I was laughing too hard to continue reading it. And I had friends that were going, oh, my God, this is the scariest thing I've ever read. No, it's not. This is bullshit. <laughs> Turn on your bullshit detector. And, you know, years later, lo and behold, uh, some research was done on it. I read an excellent book. I can't remember the, the author's name now. Uh, but he'd spent a long time debunking that particular story. It was cooked up between Ron DeFeo Jr., who, who murdered his family, and his lawyer uh, to make some money and to try and come up with a plea, you know. And then, you know, it's become an industry since. Well, that was produced, the original movie was produced by American International Pictures. And American International Pictures is as closely tied to the intelligence community as you could get. They were producing all of Roger Corman's stuff, and I go into detail on all that in my book. Uh, but interestingly, they seem to have a vested interest in trying to sell the Amityville horror. And that's just its own separate story. It takes a bit of research. And that one guy's book, I could, I'd have to go downstairs to find it. I've got it. I could pick it up and, and give you his name. Um, he did an independently published book just talking about that subject, and I thought he did an excellent job of covering it. Okay. Um, now I don't even remember what the original question was. I got sidetracked. Just, I guess, about the government oh, 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 rolling oh. people's thoughts on, on yes. the unknown, if you will. Where the government has a vested interest in that is that they want to lump things like UFOs into Bigfoot, Elvis being alive, Anything tinfoil hat. Yes, smear, so if you will. So they want to make these subjects as ridiculous as they possibly can in order that they will have something else they can lump into it, and UFOs being one of them. It was on one of those shows that I saw the Travis Walton thing. That's just for a single example, which doesn't mean that they did a bad job of covering Travis Walton, but they put it on a show that people are not really going to take very credibly. Right, right, right. I remember they had an ABC special like that a couple of years ago. It was like two hours long, and the first half was really good, and then it got all crazy and shit about ET hybrids and stuff. And whether or not you believe in that part, it's like, let's just keep things separated uh, if we're, we're going to present to the mainstream. Right. All right. Next question comes from Brent H., and he is uh, down in Australia. He asks, actually, he wants to know if you thought Prometheus was crap. And he says 90%... <laughs> He says 90% of the people he knows down here in Oz thought so for many and varied reasons. So what are your thoughts on Prometheus? I'm actually glad that that particular movie came up. Prometheus is one of the most overhyped movies I've seen. I love Ridley Scott. Um, I was just puzzled when I was done with that movie, and every review site that I've gone to has asked the exact same questions that were in my mind when that movie was over. I wouldn't necessarily say it was crap. It was Let's be specific. It was gorgeously produced crap. <laughs> uh, it was a splendid roller coaster ride. It had some great stuff in it. It was a lot of fun. But it really did not answer a single question. It did not have a, a plot that made any sense. Uh, it just threw a whole lot of shit at you. And even the people I know that love that movie say that. They just liked the whole lot of shit that was thrown at them and liked the fact that it wasn't answered. 
I prefer to have some story that actually makes some concrete sense. Um, what this was, I think, was a teaser for a new alien movie series. And as a teaser, yeah, it's great. But it really doesn't answer anything. And as a movie, it, it does fall far short in a number of categories. Gorgeously produced, though. Great cast, gorgeous production. Um, it's impressive. But, yeah, it's severely flawed. Now, what about also, this, this is something I have to bring up. If yeah. anyone ever saw the movie uh, Leviathan, I mean, back in 1989, uh, it was an MGM movie, MGM United Artists. And it was the exact same story as Prometheus. That was kind of an alien ripoff, and I thought it was really peculiar. The entire time I was watching it, all I could think of was Leviathan, and I said, Ridley, seriously? You've had, what, 30-some years to come up with a prequel to this, and what you chose for a prequel to this was a ripoff of your original movie? Because it was the exact same plot. It was just <laughs> set under sea. Uh, you had a uh, bunch of oil workers under sea who come across this sunken Russian ship that had some bioweapon on it that was turning people into bioweapons. And um, it's the same damn story. Hmm. All right. So what about as far as, uh, now I think I think he was asking for like sort of a straight up review, but I'm sure other people are wondering because, you know, the paranormal community reads a lot into these films and stuff. Did you see anything in there that resonated with your milieu, if you will? Yes, quite a bit. Uh, just from the very start, they had one un a completely unnecessary scene where they show people studying the cave drawings and saying we came from the stars. Uh, they could have cut five minutes out of the movie that would have helped so much. It just tripped up the pace right from the start. They really should have clipped that scene because they recount all of that uh, when they wake up on their mission and all that type of thing. Yeah. They didn't need to show that. It just made it that five minutes too long and got it off on the wrong tone. Uh, really would have made it, it, it would have made it a completely different movie if they had. But they're immediately throwing the ancient astronaut thing in your face. Uh, it does resonate exactly with what I'm writing about. Um, the idea is that the human race originated someplace else. Uh, and, and he's even hinting at the idea that these guys were the gods, and the gods did try to destroy us at one point, you know, face it, or more than one point in mythology. Yeah. In fact, they succeeded at least once, uh, probably more than that. So, yeah, it's setting up the exact same uh, historical milieu of what I'm talking about. Uh, as to how successful it was, like I said, as a teaser, it's great. Uh, it's a great setup for whatever the next movie will be. <laughs> but as its own movie, yeah, it's, it's severely flawed. I thought that was just a very, very odd choice for him to make. So maybe you'll look back on it when all, kind of like Fringe, when all the stuff's all out, finally you'll maybe yeah. look back and think, oh, actually, now that all makes sense. Yeah, or, or it'll, better, uh, or he'll probably answer all the questions later. I had the same problem with 2001. Everyone that tells me 2001 such an incredibly great movie. No, it's not. It's a piece of shit. It's a gorgeous piece of film. And it's got one concrete story in it, and even it doesn't end satisfactorily. That's the Howl story, yeah. Mad Computer. Other than that, <laughs> it's just a bunch of weird stuff that's tossed out at you with no resolution anywhere. It doesn't have any concrete story. So as a movie, it stinks. As a piece of film, it's incredible. All right. Uh, next question comes from Steve G. He wants to know if you think that the zombie-slash-apocalypse genre movies and shows are a metaphor for future societal collapse. Oh, wow, that one's fun. <laughs> so what do you think of that? There's there's this big zombie apocalyptic boom, and you wonder... Oh, I make zombie apocalypse jokes all the time. In fact, Joss Whedon just made a very funny one where he was talking about... Uh, he was for Obama, of course, so he was talking about Romney and making him Zomney. 
Zomni and the zombie apocalypse. Vote for the zombie apocalypse. A vote for Romney is a vote for the zombie apocalypse. And he's very low-key about it. He's doing it all from his kitchen and making just this big shaggy dog joke out of it. But it got a good laugh out of me. I joke about the zombie apocalypse all the time. Uh, the, the mere fact that the words zombie apocalypse have become a meme. They are in the public consciousness. You can say it anywhere, and anyone knows what you're talking about. They're, they're automatically on the same page with you. The mere fact that it has reached that proportion tells you something. I don't even know what it is it tells you. I always thought from the time that George A. Romero was making his first movies that he was just doing a metaphor for uh, the great unwashed, you know, and suburbanites, and or people stuck in urban blight that are just moving through their life by sleepwalk motions. I think that's what he was trying to do originally. And certainly it carries through now, especially when, you know, you have legions of unemployed popping up. I'm one of them. <laughs> I, I never pictured I was going to be unemployed again, you know. You just don't. It happens. Say, poof, surprise, there you are. You're a zombie now. You got hit by the virus. Oops. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think that there's some kind of interesting things you can read into it. I've always thought that it was a metaphor for the great unwashed, so to speak, especially since more and more of us find ourselves ending up as the great unwashed whether we are or not. Yeah. We find ourselves stuck in that, you know, the common throng and in reduced circumstances and such. I think that's what that's a metaphor for. Interesting. Yeah. So in a way, uh he says future societal collapse, but you almost wonder if it's just ongoing societal collapse. Ongoing that's the answer right there. I think it's ongoing societal collapse. And just by the by, I think that the government's been very worried about this for a very, very long period of time. We've we've been in gradual stages of collapse for a long time. I frequently take shots at Ronald Reagan because I think he was a terrible president. The policies he established created all the problems we're in now. However, the reason he was able to get away with creating the policies that he created was because we were kind of on the verge of collapse then. And we've been doing nothing except artificially propping ourselves up repeatedly in different ways, uh, not necessarily the right ways, and I think definitely the wrong ways, and history will bear that out. Huh. But the point is that we get by making all kinds of mistakes. 9-11. 9-11 was a big mistake. And, yeah, I do think we were responsible for that. Uh, we decided we wanted to do the imperial oil wars thing. Well, guess what? Uh, bad call. I don't think that's going to work out. It hasn't been, and here's our economy collapsing still. Yeah. They keep coming up with Band-Aids to put on the collapsing economy. So ongoing, yeah, I think that's the best word for it. Okay. Uh, next question comes from one to believe, and uh, he or she would like to ask you what your impressions are of some of the TV and movie productions that have been produced since you concluded the awesome Rux trilogy a few years ago, which inspired him to track down a copy of your excellent book, Hollywood vs. the Aliens. So see, we sold at least one book. You don't even see <laughs> anything from that because it's probably on eBay or something. Yeah, it's it's been out of print for a little while now. Apparently, I just found that out a few months ago. Yeah, I could have sworn someone asked about that, but I don't. I don't see it here, so I'll do a quick check after we're uh, done with these questions. Um, and he says a few examples he can think of are, and there's a ton of them. So just, I guess we'll just pick a couple that you might be interested in or have resonated with you. He says Apollo 18, Cowboys and Aliens, Super 8, Battle of L.A., Skyline, Paul, Men in Black 3, Prometheus, which we talked about, plus reworks of Total Recall and Planet of the Apes, as well as TV series like The Event, Falling Skies. Fringe, Flash Forward, and UK shows like Life on Mars, Torchwood, and new episodes of Red Dwarf. And he's not sure if you've seen any of these yet, but he'd love to hear your views on the last few years of sci-fi TV and movies. Three or four of those I haven't seen. 
Um, <laughs> I like it. So, so the vast minority you have not seen. The vast seen. minority <laughs> I have not seen. Uh, the rest of them, most of them are pretty disappointing overall. Uh, for Apollo 18, that was a great idea. Uh, it kind of got killed by shaky cam. Um, really, it was a sort of a reworking of an Outer Limits episode that was a much better Outer Limits episode with the talking rocks, if you ever saw that one. That was a really, really scary episode. And they kind of transplanted that one to the moon, and it almost worked. They were almost there. I enjoy that movie more than most people do. It bombed terribly, but I'm sure it still made money hand over fist because it cost nothing to produce. In fact, I'm surprised that there's not a sequel to it already, even if it was a bomb, because it would make money too. Uh, it wasn't bad. It's was kind of a good scary movie. It just got killed by shaky cam. <laughs> um, throw some of the other names at me. Uh, let me see. Cowboys and Aliens? Cowboys and Aliens was done much better as uh, High Plains Invaders by Sci-Fi Channel. It's the same movie. Yeah, I heard I that just, at the time. Yeah, they I just liked it better on Sci-Fi. I thought High Plains Invaders was, I don't know, because it was uh, it was smaller and simpler, and it just had more heart, kind of. Uh, Cowboys and Aliens was too overblown for me. All right. Fair enough. Okay. It was all right. <laughs> uh, well, we'll try another one. We'll try, uh, we'll do some TV shows here. Well, we talked about a little bit about Fringe. We can cross that one out. How about the event? Did you follow the event? A lot of people in the paranormal field were all a, a tither about that. I tried to follow the event. <clears throat> I started watching the event and I lost track of it. Uh, it was either on at a time that I couldn't see it or I think I tuned into it a couple times and it wasn't there. They moved it or something. It was like it wasn't always on when it was supposed to be. In any event, I, I couldn't keep up with it. I was enjoying what I saw of it. I thought it was fascinating. I uh, definitely wanted to see more. It had that same kind of hook quality to it that Lost did. And I was very much afraid that it was going to end up the same way. But I had to admit, the hook really had me all the way from the start. Um, is that on disc? I'd love to see it. I'm not sure, actually. Maybe not yet. I don't right. know. See, my only problem with shows like that are they're like one one season wonders, and then they go away, and they never get the chance to resolve what the... Well, speaking you know. of that, I don't know if you followed American Horror Story on FX, Wednesday Late Nights. That's a great flipping show. But they finished up a whole storyline last year, and I thought, well, they must have just been a one-season thing. Nope, they got a new season. They did something brilliant. They came up with a completely different story and completely different characters, but using the same cast. Brilliant. Interesting. And you've been, I've, I've heard mixed reviews on that, so I'll have to check it out if you if you like it. I love that show. Okay. All right. Um, has I guess, uh, to, instead of sort of going through one, two, believes list, has uh, anything in particular, like, really stood out since we last talked to you about, you know, the world of sci-fi, TV, and movies? The second we're not talking... Twelve titles will pop into mind. <laughs> exactly. Off the top of my head, I can't think of anything in particular. Right. That's right. why I was thinking if you throw some titles at me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> How about Paul? What, do, I don't know if we talked about Paul. Paul. We yeah. talked about Paul last time. I okay. love that movie. Uh, I, I know after the last time I talked, someone uh, made a comment about my questionable taste, and I laughed. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know if they were referring to Paul or Green Lantern or what, because I liked both of them. <laughs> And everybody hated Green Lantern. I think I'm like the only person in the world saying, hey, this is not a bad movie, guys. What's the problem here? Uh, yeah, I, I, there were things in Green Lantern I liked, and I thought Paul was just terrific. It, it was the perfect casting of Seth Rogen for perhaps the only time ever. And he'll probably never be cast that well again. Until he, Paul too. 
Right, until Paul too. <laughs> uh, they just had the, the perfect voice for exactly that character and the perfect personality for it. And that's where he, he fit really well. And I had a great cast. And I thought uh, it had a very engaging story. It was just a hell of a lot of fun. It was kind of warm and personal and funny. Yeah, it's a good movie. I like that one a lot. All right, I guess that covers sort of the uh, the world of sci-fi in the last few years. So we we can't cover all of the list because otherwise we'd be going a long a long time here. <laughs> I wish I could, and I know that there's other stuff that I would love to comment on, but it's it's not striking me off the top of my head. Right, right. That's uh, why we got to get you set up at BOA to start writing uh, these these reviews. And by the way, just quick check on uh, Netflix. The event is available. It's five discs and twenty two episodes. See, I find myself, I like the streaming version of Netflix much better, obviously, for, I, I presume you do too, but I'm all, I'm almost too lazy to do the, the discs part. I'm not set up for streaming is the problem. I no. don't have a PlayStation or anything like that. Uh, so it's just much easier for me to use the discs. Yeah. Well, you can do it on the computer, but I don't know if, uh, you say your computer's on, on its last legs anyway, so. Right. And when I do things on my computer, I'm usually doing other things on my computer. Uh, I can't do something on, on my computer and watch something at the same time. No, indeed. So I'd have to kind of do it separately. Yeah. All right. Next question comes from Vamp Elvis, who uh, is a good friend of the program. He has a normal question and a funny one, and since he's a good friend of the show, I'll allow the funny one. He uh, the, the serious question is... Uh, he wonders if you've been contacted by recent BOA audio guest and doctoral candidate Robbie Graham, who's the man behind Silver Screen Saucers. I don't even know the name. Okay. We should check out his stuff or listen to uh, the episode he was on. He does. Uh, he essentially looks at the same idea of uh, the government por- uh, Hollywood portrayal of movies and what the government's role in all that might be. Oh, yeah, I'd be very interested. Yeah, so check out, uh, he was on BOA Audio uh, over the summer, so definitely one worth looking at. What's his name again? Robbie Graham. I'll check him out. Yeah, yeah. He's interesting, very deep thinker. I think uh, he's on some interesting leads and stuff like that, so. And amazing it's, that uh, doctor. It's a very can. deep field. There's a lot of stuff that can be mined out of it. Indeed. And uh, the funny question is, he says that you sound like a man who could rock an ascot or a smoking jacket with a plum. So given the ch- <laughs> given the choice, which is your preference, smoking jacket or a ascot? Uh, it would definitely be the smoking jacket because the ascot uh, screams Fred from Scooby Doo. Ah, yes. And as a Scooby Doo buff, I guess you don't you don't. Uh... Well, Fred is lame. <laughs> <laughs> He's one of the lamest characters ever. That doesn't mean that I don't love him, but he is lame. (laughs) Did you enjoy the live-action Scooby-Doo movies? I liked the first one quite a bit. Yes. I I actually preferred the second one. I thought they were both good. In fact, they were showing one of those, was it tonight or last night? They had Scooby-Doo on just recently. Um, I've seen it a couple times. I've got both. I've got copies of both of them. I was able to get them cheap, you know. I presume so. Yeah. Um, Yeah, you get them in, like, packs. I don't think I've seen the sequel. I'll have to check that one out. I liked the sequel. I liked it better. It was closer to the actual original cartoon. Is it the same cast? Yeah, it's the same cast. Oh, wow. I'm surprised I missed that, because I'm a huge fan of, like, these sort of cheesy-type movies, so. Well, they did a great job with it. They're, like I said, there are very few incarnations of Scooby-Doo that I don't like. There are a couple that I don't like. When they're really juvenile, I don't care for those too much. Those just aren't much fun. Because uh, there's so much you can do with Scooby-Doo. They're very simple stock characters. It, it's very simple stock situations. It, it's deliberately there to make fun of. And they frequently make fun of themselves and do it well. Yeah. 
I don't remember. Were there allusions to Fred and Daphne having sex in the live-action movie or, or Velma being a lesbian? I think there were some allusions to Velma being a lesbian. Yeah, I think so, uh, there, too, but I don't remember. There were a couple of them at the bar. Uh, there was some girl who tried to pick her up at the bar. <laughs> oh, Velma. Everyone was just automatically assuming. Exactly. <laughs> and in the second, she uh, has an affair with Seth Green. Oh, wow. That's fun all by itself. Yeah. They got all their friends in these movies. Yep. See, I like that sort of uh, that sort of generation, I guess you could say, of actors. You know, they, they, they kind of fizzled out, obviously, but you know. Yeah, they all grew up together. Yeah, the Sarah yeah, Michelle Geller. Yeah, most of them. Geller, it, it's kind of hard Michelle finding any careers there. Sarah Michelle Geller is still around, but uh, you know, I can't remember the last thing I saw her in. <laughs> she's probably coasting on residuals and shit now. She's probably she's coasting on residuals, right? And Freddie Prinze Jr. married her, so he's doing right. all right. They're doing fine. Seth Green's a producer. He makes Robot Chicken, so he's probably got the best Very funny show, out Robot of all Chicken. of them. Yeah. Robot Chicken is the second or third funniest show on uh, on Adult Swim. I think the Venture Brothers is the funniest. <laughs> I like that. I haven't seen Venture Brothers, so I'll check that out. Oh, you've got to see Venture Brothers. All right. I'll Did you it. like Johnny Quest? If you ever liked Johnny Quest when you were a kid, you will love the Venture Brothers because it's just a parody of Johnny Quest. All right. I think I missed it, but I'd probably still enjoy it, so I'll, I'll check it out. Uh, then the final submitted question comes from Hillbilly, and he says, uh, thanks for this opportunity, Tim. He wants to know if you can offer insight into the career of Stanley Kubrick, which we've kind of already done. Yes. And he wants to know if you think Kubrick and other prolific directors have been given a glimpse behind the curtain of this fashioned reality we find ourselves in. Yes. Uh, that was exactly what I was talking about earlier. I think Kubrick was probably, um, deliberately bought by the government, basically, to fake the moon landings. That does not say whether or not we actually went to the moon, but what we saw on TV, I am convinced, was uh, filmed in a studio, and it was probably Stanley Kubrick that did it. Okay, fair enough. What about other prominent directors? Anyone you think? Spielberg? Possibly. That's the big one that everyone seems he's like the next uh, he would be He would be top of my list, yeah. yeah. If there is anyone that is currently uh, looking behind the curtain, it would be Spielberg. Interesting. What about George Lucas? A lot of people uh, have sort of mixed feelings on him. I know he's a very rich man now, or I guess he's giving away the money uh, that he made from the sale. I tell you the truth, I don't think Lucas cares. I think he just, the only thing he cares about is inventing his fantasy land and tossing it out there and making billions of dollars on it. Well, you know, he sold it to Disney. Yep, $4 billion. $4 billion with a B. Pretty amazing, just for something that he thought up, you know, and... Obviously, the Joseph Campbell stuff and all that shit. That right. Sort of well, I mean, after after Campbell died, that's when he made the second three, and the second three were... Yeah, exactly. That's when he was just kind of stuck doing the comic book stuff, and the comic book stuff wasn't that good. Uh, I actually think Disney will make them better. I think the best thing that um, Lucas could have done was sell them to Disney. Yeah. They'll still hire him to use Industrial Light and Magic to do the effects, I'm sure. I think it's overall a good move for the franchise, and I'm not even a big fan, but you got to get it out of the hands, out of his hands at some point, so it's good. you got to get his fingers off the keyboard. He's got to stop writing scripts. Right. He can handle everything else. He's really going to stop writing scripts. Now, as I said, that was the last of the submitted questions, and, and one that had come up between myself. I have a, a pop culture comedy show. Actually, you've met Jeremy Vaney. We had you on the Lost cast back in the day, so you've, sure. you've spoken with Jeremy. He was really intrigued because we had been talking about your your placement, I guess you could say, at the scene of of the Aurora situation, and he was sort of wondering how he didn't. I don't have this to read off of, so I'm going to paraphrase, sure. I guess, or go by memory, and you know, hopefully, I do justice to his inquiry. But he was sort of wondering, as someone who's done 
extensive research into the field of conspiracy and cover-up and all that stuff. Whether you believe it or not, what do you think of just how this thing that you were at exploded into the conspiracy cover-up scene? Does it give you pause, I guess you could say, about the greater realm of conspiracy at large, if you will? Yeah, actually. I'll tell you one thing that does bother me. First off, they got the right guy. I'm firmly convinced they got the right guy. However, uh, I am constantly bothered by just how extensive this guy's knowledge was of explosives and booby traps. The FBI had never seen anything like that before. If the FBI hasn't seen it, who has? Yeah. That's really, really bothered me since. It's also bothered me wondering how he got into the theater unless the door was propped, and I couldn't imagine the theater allowing the door to be propped. There are, there are some questions that remain to be answered. Unfortunately, I don't think we're going to get them from the trial. Yeah, I don't think so. Well, look at that guy that shot the the congresswoman down there in Arizona. Like, they said he was too mentally impaired to do a trial, and they dragged it out, and then he pled guilty, you know, after he had, quote-unquote, treatment. And right. then he just pled... There was no trial. So it's like this... There's a very good chance that this guy, by the time the trial rolls around, they'll be like, he's too mentally incompetent to stand trial. Then six months, a year goes by, even less people are interested in the whole story. And, and then it's like, okay, he's okay now, and he realizes he's an asshole, and he pleads guilty. I do have to wonder if the guy had some help, uh, especially with the explosive stuff, and that that does bother me. But I'm I'm firmly convinced, A, that law enforcement knows all about it, if it is there. And B, we are never going to hear a word about it. Interesting. What you mean, law enforcement knows that he had help, but but they're not going to really do anything about it. Almost a Columbine-esque thing. Yes. If he had help, I'm quite sure law enforcement knows about that and that they're going to keep it under wraps. Why do you think they would do that? Because they don't want to panic anybody. If he had help, it raises too many questions. Who would help someone with something like that? Oh, okay, so you're saying that maybe the maybe the, the the law enforcement knows that he had help, but they don't know who helped him, and they can't figure that out. So until they can actually bust down some dude's door and fucking bring him in, they're not going to go telling anybody. Even then, they might not. There were other parties involved in Columbine. There were people, there was someone that got away. No one's ever found this guy. Uh, there, are, if you saw Bowling for Columbine, uh, Roger Moore did raise an interesting point, which is that happened on the very day that we did the heaviest bombing in Kosovo. Hello? Oh, I lost you. It's Michael Moore, by the way. Let me see if I can reconnect with you. For folks who are wondering, we we were cut off in the middle of this conversation here about all this at 2.30 in the morning, my time. Uh, and I lost my phone line for about an hour, and we had to set everything up to come back again tonight here, 21 and a half hours later, to right. wrap, up the converse- <laughs> wrap up the conversation. And where... The point you were making, to, to make this almost a seamless sort of uh, transition between the two days' worth of conversation, I think uh, you had made the point right as the line cut out that uh, Columbine happened right at the same time as some kind of uh, when the U.S. was bombing, I want to say Kosovo or something like that. But my That's right. In, it's in Bowling for Columbine. I, I didn't know it until I'd seen that movie. He mentioned that the uh shooting at Columbine took place on the same day that we did the most massive bombing in Kosovo. Uh, what makes that a curious coincidence is that the the Columbine school happened to be kids of mostly defense contractors, you know. Yeah. Uh, we're a very heavy defense contracting state out here. And, in fact, uh, just a mile or two down the road from the theaters where the shooting took place is Buckley, Air Naval Guard Base. 
and there was, in fact, a guy from Buckley who was killed that night. Uh, that's, that is coincidental, I'm certain. He just happened to be there because, of course, there are going to be some people from Buckley that go there. They live in this area. Uh, but the point is, there could be some kind of connection there. I don't necessarily look for one, but when I see something like, um, first off, noticing the Columbine problems and that there was someone that wasn't caught at Columbine or there was there were reports of someone who was never caught, um, uh, you do kind of have to wonder in the back of your mind. I and mean, certainly when all of us were out there and we saw uh, mobile command units coming in and we've got bomb-sniffing dogs, it crosses all of our minds immediately that there's a possibility of terrorism there. Yeah. And, Plainly, you don't want to think that, uh, but it is a possibility. It, there, there's a chance that this guy was not acting alone and that there was someone just using him. Um, I'm sure they got the right guy, but there would be interested parties in maneuvering right guys like that. Uh, I, I'm hoping that's not the case. If it is the case, I'm certain that the appropriate authorities are fully aware of it and are doing everything they can to track that down. And I'm, I'm equally sure that we will never hear anything about that if it is the case. Now, that raises something that I thought of, actually, uh, in the interim between the two <laughs> over the last day. Um, and you, earlier in the conversation, you made the point about aliens potentially using abductees to sabotage shit. Would this be possible? And obviously, you're not going out there and yelling this from the rooftop that this is what happened. But is it a poss- Is this kind of a scenario that you, as an example, I guess you could say, you know what I mean? I'm sure the government, there are certain factors, factions in the government that would like um, their funding people to believe that. Uh, there's never been an abductee that was connected to any kind of crime like this. Okay. Never, any gun, never any murder, never any shooting, never anything like that. Uh, it, w- it wouldn't be in the press, however, or in any of the research that they might have been involved in sabotage. I infer that yeah. they might have been involved in sabotage, and I'm reasonably certain there's very good reason to believe that that's possibly the case. It certainly explains a lot of why the government has handled things the way the government has handled things. Yeah. They would have to be concerned about that. Whether it was taking place or not, they would have to be concerned about it. Now, what do you think of uh, being from the area? What are, your, what are your thoughts on the whole weirdness of Denver Airport? Because a lot of conspiracy people like go crazy about that whole thing and how <laughs> you know how the rumors that they're going to that Denver's the alternate capital of the United States and it's the backup capital and all that stuff. To the best of my knowledge, this is one place where I can meet them halfway. I consider most of the conspiracy theories about the IA to be just nuts. Uh, we certainly have some hideous artwork out there, and God knows how the hell it ever got put up. Uh, whether there's anything that can be read into it or not, I don't know. I can't look at it long enough to tell you. It's really hideous. <laughs> uh, I don't go there very often. I mean, it, it looks like eight-year-olds finger-painted this crap up there, and how they ever got that approved, I don't know. It's just <laughs> awful. Yeah. And some really ridiculous shit. Um, however, the idea of Denver being the alternate capital, I believe Denver actually is the alternate or secondary capital. I don't remember when that was decided, and I'd have to chase that down. Um, but I believe that it actually is a, we are historically the second capital. If anything happened to Washington, D.C., they'd move here. I could be wrong on that, but I, I have heard that several times before. And I'd need to chase it down to verify it. Yeah. I, I don't think that's really a conspiracy theory. I think there's something to that. Right, right. Stands to reason. That's where NORAD is, and they, they probably have more sort of uh, secure, right. you know, carved-out mountains and shit out there. So. Right. Well, we're also away from the coasts and, you know, kind of centrally located in, in the middle of the country. Right. So, yeah, it does make sense in a number of ways. Uh, I'm not even sure where exactly I'd research that. I could probably just type it into the search engine and find the answer pretty quick. 
But, yeah, I don't consider that necessarily conspiracy theory. That does make sense to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, the only other question here was one I could have sworn that someone posted. Maybe they posted it and then edited it and took it out and changed it to one of the questions we already read. But uh, in, in, the, in the time I was looking over the questions before I sat down to write them, well, I didn't write them, I copied them all uh, for the interview, I could have sworn someone asked about getting your books on Kindle. And I think we've talked about this before. What's the, what's the, I guess, you know, what's the possibility, because the books are hard to get now. So, and I know we've the talked about this. The second one is anyway. The first is, uh, this is what I got a few months ago. I haven't really chased this down yet. Uh, the second's been out of print for a little while. I'm not sure exactly when that happened. The first is not out of print. It's just currently out of stock, which means they're getting around to reprinting it or or coming up with a new edition or just putting more copies out or something. So that one might be temporarily a little difficult to get a hold of. Uh, the second one it goes for premium prices on Amazon. I kind of laugh at that. Uh, you know, it didn't sell that well apparently, but now that it's out of print, <laughs> people can actually command some money for it. And the, in some cases they ask just ridiculous prices. Uh, but you can still actually get used copies at a reasonable price of the second. Anyway, I was interrupting. I'm not sure exactly what the question was again. Well, the other part was Kindle. Yeah, well, I'm seeing here now, $146 uh, someone's charging for it. Yeah, so. exactly. I mean, just, I've seen it go as high as 500 something and I just laugh. So you've got to be flipping kidding me. I mean, even if the thing's out of print, no one is going to pay that kind of money. You can always find a used copy for, you know, 15 20 bucks somewhere. Uh, I, I see them on Amazon. I don't check very often. The last time I checked is when I was prompted to contact the publisher and see what had happened because I, I figured it had to be out of print when I was seeing ridiculous prices being charged for it. Yeah. And they confirmed that. But like I said, the uh, the first one is apparently they call it one of their best sellers. Don't ask me. I mean, my bank account doesn't know the difference. <laughs> but um, it's still in print. It's just currently out of stock. And And since I talked to them, they've probably printed up some more copies. Now, do you, uh, the Kindle thing, yeah, the Kindle part, that, yeah. uh, I keep forgetting this, uh, you'd have to ask the publisher about that. I have no idea. Yeah, uh, They're the ones that handle all that stuff. Um, they might put it up for Kindle. I suppose if you contacted them and asked them, you could find out. It's, uh, it's still Frog Books, but they're owned by Random House now in New York. Yeah. So that always makes it kind of fun if someone says, who's your publisher? Uh, I have to say Random House, but I would say actually it's Frog, but... You know, it got bought by Random House. So technically, yeah, I'm, I'm covered by Random House now. Interesting. I don't know how the book world works. Like, how long do they have the rights to it until, like, could you, do you, I don't even, it's, it's technical, but not super technical to get it into Kindle format. Like, I presume, though, that you don't have the rights to do that. But could you actually eventually do that, you think? Or would you have to painstakingly yes, recycle? Yes, I could eventually do that. I really have to find out. I've got to dig up my contract, and I could get them to send me a copy of it, actually. I know it's here. I just have to find it. Yeah. Um, that would give me the technical stuff I need to know. I believe when a book goes out of print, I seem to recall this in the contract, there's a certain period of time where if it remains out of print and they don't do anything with it, uh, you get the rights automatically returned to you. There might be some kind of a fee for uh, delivering the materials, but all the materials are supposed to return to the author. And uh, then you can just, I, I could go to resell it. Yeah. You know? uh, then what I do is just go for a paperback uh, a regular mass market paperback thing. Yeah. And it's possible someone would pick it up. Um, questionable, but possible. It, even if something doesn't sell all that well in its initial printing, doesn't mean that it wouldn't do well on a mass paperback. I think it would do extremely well in Kindle, too, because uh, that seems Probably. to be the, the new way of, of of the world with these books and stuff. And, you know, 
for if you if you could get the rights back, it, you'd be all right because it's really just a matter of. Oh well, certainly, yeah, the Kindle would be negotiated, and I'm sure if it went in a reprint, the Kindle would would be it would be available on Kindle. Everything is anymore. Yeah, you should definitely uh, try that out because uh, I think people would people are dying for this for for the book in a way. You know, they really want to be able to get a hand their hands on it. So now, <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. Before we couldn't sell it. Now, now everybody wants it. Hey, I want this book. <laughs> Uh, anything else we need to talk about? Anything else? Uh, well, it's it's so weird here because it's like a whole day later, so <laughs> so it feels like it feels like we just started talking, but we've we've got uh two and almost two and a half hours in the can already. So, is there anything else? Uh, what I guess we we already kind of talked about the potential for this pirates book, so that's something that you don't want to overly tease, but may happen someday. It may happen someday. Uh, the the entire reason that I don't do stuff like that. Um, I don't really think about writing books anymore because there's just no money in it. Yeah. Uh, even if you get a legitimate publisher and go through the process and all of that, uh, yes, it'll get you in some libraries, and yes, it will get enough attention that you might end up, I might end up making friends like you and getting onto uh, this kind of show. Uh, I do have some readers who are, uh, let's just say they've got credentials, and yes, they do pay serious attention to me. And when once in a blue moon, I actually have a conversation with one of them. Um, so I know I'm read in some pretty interesting circles, uh, and I'm considered legit. I mean, it, if if anyone wants to argue that I'm, you know, mad or anything like that for believing in Martians, that's fine. But nobody quibbles with my research. Uh, the research is fine. It's all done properly, and no one quarrels with that. Yeah. So that alone does get some attention in the right places. But there's just no money in it. Uh, if you have the leisure time... Uh, H.P. Lovecraft once said that writing is something that only leisure gentlemen can do because there's no money in it. He's, he's <laughs> absolutely right. Um, you have to do it just because you love it and because you happen to have the time and you're not pressed to do anything else. When I wrote my books, that was the case. Uh, now, I'm relatively kind of in that position now that I am going to have to worry about income sometime in the foreseeable future. Um, and that just puts a damper on the idea of writing anything. It yeah. takes way too much time and way too much effort. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of where I'm at. I don't have time to sit down and write a book. Yeah. You know, everybody else I know has got books out and shit, but it's like, I don't have time. It re- it's going to take a very, a very long period of time. It's going to take you a year. And getting the research and getting everything written down and polishing up and all that kind of nonsense, let alone finding a publisher for it, you're going to be at least a year at that. I promise you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the chance that you're going to get published is even questionable. It would be a little bit easier for me because I do have a couple of books under my belt. That always helps. Yeah. So we talked about the Kindle thing. And we talked about uh, Vaney's question. We did all the listener questions. I think that's it. I think we got everything covered. That sounds about right. Yeah. So on that note, I guess we uh, we bid farewell. Oh, I got to get – oh, that was the other thing I was going to say. I got to get, I gotta get uh, my webmaster on this thing to get the blog format set up at Banal of America so we can bring you in to, uh, to write and get some of this stuff out for more people. You know? Oh, yeah, that'd be great. Because uh, I would definitely love to have you as part of the team here of writers. So, And I know you have a lot to say. And it's an awful lot of fun to talk about. Exactly. And uh, I guess, you know, on that note, we bid farewell here for the year. Uh, it's been an amazing conversation, Bruce. It really, uh, I enjoyed it quite a bit. And we went down so many different avenues. Uh, and really, 
you know, that's thanks to you and thanks to uh, the listeners who submitted all these questions. So, you know. I would like to take a moment to thank the, uh, all of the listeners for the questions that they sent. I think they were intelligent questions. They were very well thought out, and uh, it was a pleasure thinking about them. Some of them were, were really excellent. They really were, and, and as I've marveled uh, over the course of the conversation, went down a whole bunch of different avenues that, uh, you know, may not have dawned on me to ask you about for a year or two or ever, uh, you know, like I said, with this, especially with the uh, the moon hoax thing. Uh, I think about it from time to time, and I'm like, I could ask Bruce about that again. Then, you know, time goes by, and we sit down and talk, and it just completely goes out of my brain. So, yeah, yeah they, they really happens. came up with some great stuff. So, you know, it, it's... In keeping, I guess, sort of with this overall theme, you know, we call it Rucksgiving, but it ties into Thanksgiving, and it's, you know, give thanks to you for coming on the show and being, you know, really giving with your time and being a big part of this program, and, you know, I know you don't do a lot of shows, you don't really don't do any shows, you only do Banal of America, it seems, and, uh... Yeah, you're pretty much exclusive. Yeah, I really appreciate that. I'd probably do another show if anyone asked, depending on what it was, but, um, I mean, there's some places I don't think I'd want to show up, but... (laughs) Yeah, I definitely enjoy being on your show. Well, I really enjoy talking to you, and, and you know, people enjoy the program because it sounds like a conversation between two old friends, and I can honestly say that it really, when it's a conversation between you and me, it is a conversation between two now old friends because uh, oh, we've yeah. known each other for quite a while at this point. And, uh, oh, yeah. This, this is a um, coffee conversation for me. I do this kind of conversation all the time with my friends, and you're one of them. So Exactly. And the listeners are they're kind of like those guys, the, uh, the, the men in black sitting at the table listening in, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Only they're they're welcome. Exactly. Yeah, they're welcome to come over and sit down and 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 grab a cup of coffee and then join in on the conversation. So sure. Thank you uh, once again, Bruce, and I hope you have a fantastic Thanksgiving. And obviously, I'll be in touch uh, over the course of the year leading up to next year's Thanksgiving. And uh, you know, the listeners, I'm sure, really appreciate it. And again, big thanks to them for their submissions. And once again, big thanks to you. I hope you have an awesome Thanksgiving holiday and. Uh, you know, I can't thank you enough for, for doing this and, and really embracing uh, being a part of our new holiday tradition. Thank you very much. The feeling is mutual. That does it for this edition of BOA Audio Season 7 and the 2012 installment of Rucks Giving. Big, big thanks, of course, to the amazing Bruce Rucks for returning for the new BOA Audio Holiday Tradition. If you would like to hear more from Bruce Rocks, check out our landmark trilogy of episodes back in Season 4, around six hours of conversation with Bruce Rocks, and of course, dig up last year's Rocks Giving for additional in-depth discussion. And hopefully it will not be another year before you hear from Bruce Rocks. I am going to seriously get down to business on bringing him aboard BOA for some written offerings for the BOA readers. Stay tuned. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA audio listener feedback, and we've got three selections from the BOA listeners, so let's just dive on in. First one comes from Carl, posting on the BOA Facebook page. He says, Hey Tim, the recent film Ancient Aliens Debunked is ruffling a lot of feathers in the UFO world. I've seen the whole movie and it is thoroughly researched, documented, compelling, and convincing. How about a head-to-head or civil panel discussion with Chris White and some ufologists or something? I might suggest Bruce McAbee on the UFO side since he is a physicist and can talk real science. Great guy, too. Carl. 
posting on the BOA Facebook page. Thank you for writing in, Carl. Thank you for the tip on this film, Ancient Aliens Debunked. I have not heard about it. I presume Chris White is the man behind the film. I will definitely check that out, and if it's as compelling as you say, I will definitely follow up on it for a future edition of BOA Audio. Regarding the whole head-to-head concept or civil panel discussion, that's definitely something I would be down for and something I've considered here at the end of the program and asked for suggestions. So this may be an avenue to finally get down to business on the whole debate theme episode that I've sort of tinkered with or contemplated over the last few years. So you may have lit a long fuse here, Carl, on a very exciting addition to the program in the future, but nonetheless... I will definitely look at Ancient Aliens Debunked and see what it's all about. Our next correspondence comes from Wayne. No hometown listed. Here's what he has to say. In your recent BOA episode featuring Nick Redfern, during the feedback section, you mentioned that it doesn't seem like paranormal events happen to people in governments or positions of power. This account from Simon Parks, a counselor from Whitby, Northshire, UK, comes to mind. And then he follows that up with a YouTube link detailing the story here of Simon Parks. So thank you for writing in, Wayne. I'll suggest folks, I guess, Google Simon Parks, and you spell Parks, P-A-R-K-E-S, to find out more about this case. Very, very interesting, Wayne. Thank you for sending that along. It's always great when the BOA Audio listeners hear the feedback portion of the show and have some insights and additional information for me to fill out the virtual conversation I'm having here with the listeners at the end of the show. So thank you, Wayne, for sending that along. I should also mention Wayne's posting here reminded me that there's also that controversial abduction case that Bud Hopkins talked about involving someone from the U.N. That's probably the only other story I can think of with people in positions of power or government experiencing some kind of paranormal event. And finally, here on listener feedback, we've got a very nice email from Marco. No hometown listed. Here's what he has to say. I wanted to make a brief comment concerning your show in general. I've been a listener since almost the very beginning. I've listened to many paranormal-type podcasts and internet radio shows. Yours is by far the best. When I listen to your show, I don't feel as if I'm listening to an interview It's more like eavesdropping on a conversation between close friends. Instead of an interviewer, you are more of a master of ceremonies, giving your guests the spotlight. You don't interrupt and give each guest, most of whom are icons in their respective fields, the respect they deserve. So many people, rightly or wrongly, believe that they have experienced something esoteric, and it is so, so important that they have a place to turn to where they can be comforted by the fact that they are not alone in their experiences. Keep up the great work for many years to come. Respectfully, Marco. Wow, Marco, thank you so much for the very kind email. I included this one, I'll admit it, folks. I just put it at the end because it was such a nice email and really kind of lifted my spirits here on a late evening as I put together the Rux-giving edition of the program. Sometimes you get these emails and they just give you the final boost to get over the edge and wrap up another edition of the program. Thank you so much, Marco. I really appreciate your kind words, sir. And the key word in that whole email, I think, is conversation. That's the real 
goal of the program at the end of the day. These are not interviews. These are conversations with some of the very best and brightest researchers of the unknown. That is the BOA way. And thank you so much, Marco, for not just recognizing that, but heaping praise on me. Man, I really am humbled beyond words. So on that note, we will wrap up listener feedback this week. Thank you to Marco for writing in. Thank you to Wayne and Carl also for posting on Facebook with their feedback. If you would like to participate in future installments of BOA Audio listener feedback, there are a myriad of ways to do so. You can head on over to Banal of America and click the contact button, or you can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. And you can also join up at the official BOA forum, the US of E.com, T H E U S O F E.com. Additionally, you can find me on Facebook or Twitter. Just punch in Banal, B I N N A L L, and that'll bring up my profiles on those respective sites. Feel free to befriend me, follow me, or poke me. It's all good, and I'd be happy to have you as part of my online circle of friends. And finally, for those folks keeping score at home, the BOA Facebook page now, I believe, has 836 people. So we're climbing closer and closer to the mythical, possibly unreachable, 1,000 likes. And as you may have noticed here on BOA Audio Listener Feedback, the BOA Facebook page is an awesome place to fast-track your listener feedback. I always call there for new postings from folks to read here at the end of the program. So if you want to really ensure a place on BOA Audio Listener Feedback, like us on Facebook and post at the BOA page, and chances are you'll be hearing your musings at the end of the program in the not-too-distant future. Now, of course, it is time for me to thank the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, and our webmaster, Jeremy Boston. I know it has been a crazy time at BOA with wild posting dates, not just for the audio series, but also for the columnist pieces. And on that note, I just want to give a sincere thanks to the amazing BOA staff, not just Folks who write for the website, but folks who are really and truly great friends and longtime hardcore supporters of the program. The BOA staff are the very best. They are ride or die folks, and I really and truly appreciate that. Hope they all have a fantastic Thanksgiving holiday. Speaking of which, what a perfect segue into the donations portion of the program. I cannot give enough thanks to all the folks out there, especially the hardcore BOA audio listeners, the ones who stick around to the very end of the show. And if you'd like to express some thanks via donations, there are a pair of ways to do so. You can head on over to banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com, and click the PayPal button. That'll take you to PayPal. They'll walk you through the process. But what if you don't trust the internet? What if you want to make a donation via snail mail? Well, you're in luck because we have a P.O. box for that very reason. Just send it off to Tim Benal, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass, 01866. 
and you can find the complete address at Benal of America under the PayPal button. As we always say at the end of the donation plug, folks, no donation is too small, and all donations go towards Benal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the entire franchise up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. On the next edition of the program, we are once again bringing back some long-time friends of the show. The incomparable Marie Jones and Larry Flaxman return for another fast-paced and very loose conversation, this time around looking at time travel. For the folks who have heard Marie and Larry on the program in previous seasons, you know that these conversations run the gamut and really just go all over the place, but they're always grounded in some tremendous research and also some really unique investigations into arcane aspects of the esoteric. In the past, we've looked at numbers. and 11.11, we've looked at the Trinity and the number 3, as well as deja vu. So this time around, looking at time travel is once again another very enlightening and thought-provoking conversation, but also containing a lot of laughs because it always breaks down into a bit of a riot when I'm talking to Marie Jones and Larry Flaxman. That's next time on BOA Audio. And on that note, we close the book on Rucks Giving 2012. Once again, big, big thanks to the amazing Bruce Rucks. Thanks again to Carl, Wayne, and Marco for their contributions to BOA Audio listener feedback. And, of course, enormous thanks to all you folks out there, the BOA Audio listeners, the folks who contributed questions for Rucks Giving 2012, the folks who are listening to this right now riding to Grandma's house or have settled down after a delicious Thanksgiving meal and are tuning in to Rucksgiving 2012, or the people who are avoiding the sales and are just hanging around on Black Friday listening to Banal of America. It is bizarre to think that this little program is a part of a lot of people's holiday traditions and a part of their big annual weekend here. So I really do appreciate it, and I'm just humbled and thrilled to be a part of so many people's lives and reaching so many folks out there and I hope you all have a fantastic Thanksgiving holiday, and once again, thank you for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening, and signing off.